Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. History paints her as a purveyor of sex and death. But sometimes, my friends, a cow just dies in the desert. And sometimes a flower is just a flower. The end. Let's talk about Georgia O'Keeffe. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1887, Melville Dewey, the creator of the Dewey Decimal System, opened the first library school at Columbia College. The world's largest recorded snowflake measuring 15 inches in diameter fell during a Montana snowstorm. Construction of the Eiffel Tower began, and Ann Sullivan and Helen Keller met and began their work together. Queen Victoria celebrated her golden jubilee. Celluloid photographic film, the mechanized elevator door, and the gramophone were all patented. Social activist Dorothea Dix, Swedish nightingale Jenny Lind, and Liberty poet Emma Lazarus all died. And in November of 1887, the future mother of American modernism was born. Georgia Tato O'Keefe was born on November 15, 1887 in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, the second of the seven children of Frank Calixtus O'Keefe and Ida Tenike Tato O'Keefe. Papa and Mama grew up together as neighbors. Um, Papa's parents had been, relatively unusually, Irish immigrants of property and had been able to set themselves up quite nicely with good farmland, servants in the house... Four healthy sons, silver service, you know, all the important things. <laughs> uh, they were very settled. Grandpa O'Keefe, however, died when Papa was still in school. But still, with men to run the farm, economically, the family was just fine. Mama was descended from a Hungarian count and a descendant of someone that rode over on the Mayflower. Though this does not carry the monetary cachet, uh, the filthy lucre that you might imply from that, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> for her. But there was uh, exciting ancestry. Grandma and Grandpa Tato had six children. Mama was toward the end. And when she was 12, her father went back to Hungary to check on property, he said. So the O'Keefe neighbors' sons were asked to farm the land for a while. Get this. Grandpa Tato never came back from Hungary. He had fled because he picked the wrong side in a revolution and it was either flee or die. So he left Hungary with nothing, really, landed in New York, met met his wife's father, and then bounced out to Wisconsin. So um, he didn't have a, too much, and he didn't have a background in farming, and his wife grew up in New York City. So life down on the farm had consisted of two people who have no idea how to live on a farm. So here's grandma with no husband, temporarily, she thought, but years passed, seven years passed, and it slowly became clear that old revolutionary Hungarian grandpa was maybe not ever going to put his hand to the plow again. He had abandoned his family. George's father, who had been farming the Tato land for years, came to town and courted her mother. And when they married, the Tato land was turned over to him. Because that made the most sense. 
And it was the only dowry she could really have. Yeah. She had three other sisters. And I guess the thought would have been that they all got married off to somebody. Mama was the only one that got married of all the sisters. If her father had not abandoned the family, I do believe things might have gone quite differently because Mama had had hopes of studying to be a doctor. How unusual in this day and age. Of course, her decision to marry absolutely slammed that career door for her. Bummer. So one thing Mama was, therefore, was very insistent upon education for all of her own children, girls as well as boys. I was reading about Mama and wondering if there was some lingering, I'd almost call it depression, about her choice to give up her improbable dream. Georgia always said that her mother was distant and sort of resolutely grim with every spare moment her face was stuck in a book. Mm -hmm. I also got the impression that she thought she was better than the people around her. I mean, she was technically, you know, there was royal blood in her veins. So she was very cultured compared to a lot of the townsfolk, much more so than George's father, you know, who was this Irish happy-go-lucky farmer boy. And so I think that was a part of it too. Yes, she wanted to continue her education, but she also felt she was um, a, a step above everybody else. She had had a come down so she could have had a better life, better quote, mm-hmm. quotes, you know. And, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And was thwarted. Lucky for the kids, their Aunt Jenny came around and pretty much was a fixture their whole life. And Aunt Jenny was the one that would give you hugs and kiss your forehead and read you stories and tell you you were awesome and come admire your dollhouse and blah, blah, blah. So they did have a basically a cozy mom and a stern mom <laughs> and a bad cop and a good cop. <laughs> and then there's dad who, for most of their childhood, he was very happy-go-lucky. He liked to play pranks and when he wasn't farming, you know, out in the field, he was drinking or singing or dancing. He was a fun guy. He was like the Disney dad almost, you know, the Disneyland dad. (laughs) Well, back to Georgia, you should picture all the kids traipsing out to the town hall school, a place very like those described in any Laura Ingalls Wilder book, a one-room schoolhouse over on the neighbor's land. Um, Georgia was always the top of her class, but she said she didn't like to mix. She was satisfied to be all by herself. (laughs) When they came home, again, just like Laura Ingalls Wilder, the boys would peel off to join Papa and the hired men in farm work. All the lady persons would tend the garden or chickens and help the hired girl and the cook. This was a time and a place where ladies, at least on the farm, were fully expected to be present and um, overseeing all the work directly. In the Midwest, you can't have delicate flowers. <laughs> After the work was done, Mama would make a special point of reading to her children and telling them stories. And the girls were taught to play the piano, some of them to sing, not Georgia, who evidently had a voice like a frog, as far as her mother was concerned, and a tin <laughs> ear. <laughs> you know your strengths, I guess. Um, Georgia was always convinced that her parents loved her brothers best. You know, boys are more important on a farm, though I would like to tell you she's the only one who had her own room in a household of 14 people. So, huh. <laughs> her sisters just worshipped her like a queen and she even said herself that quote I always had a sense of my own power when she didn't want to do a thing or be a thing she just didn't no fight no discussion those rules these fashions or passions or whatever you people do simply doesn't apply to me no thank you Sounds like me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. There's so many things about her, especially young her. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's Beckett. (laughs) She liked to be around people. 
she was fine. And then when she was done, she was done and just as fine off by herself, you know, using her imagination and playing with her dollhouse and, you know, not talking to anybody else. I yeah. know. So you. I just liked how she just proceeded as if you're in charge and most of the time no one opposes you. You have to make them pluck up the courage to stop you. And most uh-huh. of the times they don't. True, true. Since we're on Beckett Graham here. Um, when she was in school, she would ask these really, uh, they seemed like out there questions, which is exactly what you do. She'd ask like, if two black clouds hit each other, is that thunder? <laughs> okay. Or huh. how many people would drown if this nearby lake spilled its banks? These are logical questions. These are, you know, but it's not things that people would normally ass. She needed the internet more than anyone. But if she'd had the internet, she wouldn't have had all that imaginative time, you know? (laughs) Agreed. Georgia O'Keefe spent all the hours our kids spend playing Fortnite obsessing over her dollhouse. Georgia O'Keefe, you know, as we know her, playing with dolls in a dollhouse. It was like two pieces of, I don't know if it was board or cardboard that would intersect in an X. And then she outfitted it. She painted wallpaper on it, decorated it, staged these elaborate lives for the imaginary people who lived in it. She'd make little lakes um, surrounded by rocks. And I'd have to tell you, she was perfectly content by herself for hours. I spent almost all my free time in 1977 with that Fisher-Price village doing the same thing. Hours in the basement, as happy (laughs) as a clam. Time flowed by, I didn't even notice. I can totally see how that would be. And I still have that village in you my house. You do? Yes, I sure do. Oh, I love that. Did yeah. Jet play with it? No, 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 no. Oh. I, I have all the Fisher-Price Little People sets. And the only one I let him play with was the garage because it's very common and I could always get another one. But like, not my village, no. <laughs> There's too many small pieces. <laughs> The grandmothers were artists. They loved to paint, and Georgia seemed to have an inclination for it. So Mama made sure that the girls all had art lessons. No, I'm not sure this was a special recognition of her talent exactly. It was actually her sister, Anita, who was thought to be the artist in the family, but it's a young lady accomplishment, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, one paints and draws when one is a lady. And the school teacher was boarding at the O'Keefe's house that year anyway, and so she gave the girls art lessons in the evenings. And then when that year was over and the teacher moved on, they moved on up to lessons in town. Although from what Georgia says, these were sort of indifferent watercolor lessons. She was never very impressed with her teachers. No. You know, there was a lot of copying, but she has to learn the rules before she can break them, right? The thing that surprised me the most is that it didn't come naturally to her. And she just had to work at it. But something about drawing and painting started to become central to her being. Even the way she started to think and look at things before she had the talent to capture what she was seeing, she was noticing things like the way white isn't really white especially snow, but a kaleidoscope of all colors. There's a lot of blue. There's purple. Like the way complex forms could be broken down into simple shapes. All of the official art personages in her world were very concerned with the, quote, proper way to do things. Copy this artist's work. Go step by step in this workbook called How to Draw. You know, (laughs) but all of this wonder that she had, this independent streak would emerge later. But for now, she had to get through a lot of years of grinding skills 
you know, singing scales, but mm-hmm. for drawing. <laughs> and um, she just had to let that percolate while all of this other was imposed upon her. Art taught to her by formula, you know. Mm-hmm. But she would go into this fugue state of concentration at home while she was trying to get to grips with this. And that literally is when you know your child is serious about something. That's how I see my child at the skate park where six hours go by and he's angry that we're leaving, quote, so soon. Oh, yeah. That must have been kind of rewarding, I think, more for um, her grandmothers to see Georgia embrace it so much. I think if you really love a child, you love seeing them find something that they love that much, whatever it is. Right. Right. Oh, I I agree. I just um, her mother wasn't like the soft, fuzzy, lovey type. So she let her, you know, she let her do it and she encouraged her. But I don't think that she was like the emotionally driving force of it. <laughs> I have to tell you, <laughs> Mama and she had the most interesting relationship their whole life. I think it is so funny. Mama pretty much let Georgia be Georgia. Like Georgia would come in mad about something and slam the door. And rather than knock on the door, let's talk about it. Do you want to explore your feelings? Mama would simply put a tray by the door. Like she'll <laughs> come out when she's ready. <laughs> she's going to have to process it on her own. Yeah. Evidently, our Georgia also had her mind made up on other subjects. She had her future career in mind from about the age of 12. Legend says that she told people that she wanted to be an artist. And when asked what kind of an artist, she said she wanted to paint portraits, which I find really hard to believe. (laughs) You know, a 12 year old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then she said an artist, but she loved art. So people were like, oh, she's going to be an artist. Let's hold on to that for when she's famous. Well, you're saying it's like a backdated 12-year-old statement? No, I think she probably did say it, but I think that it was among other things. You know, I don't think she was solely focused on being an artist at the time. I think she was enjoying it, but there really wasn't any female artists. I hate to be sexist, and she certainly wasn't, but there wasn't anybody to say that she could be an artist, like a professional one. Sure, she could do it as a hobby like her grandparents did, but as a career? Question mark? Well, there was Mary Cassatt. Yes. Do they know Mary Cassatt in Wisconsin? Uh, No, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Georgia was sent to a convent boarding school around eighth grade. It was considered the best local secondary school for girls. I don't know that it had like, um, you know, religious meaning to them. But then off to live with an aunt, um, lightly supervised, just at the perfect age for independence. You know, when you're between 13 and 15 and you can't really drive yet, but there's just nothing better than to meet up with your dudes and go nowhere. (laughs) That school she went to, Sacred Heart Academy in Madison, it's still there. It's uh, the name now is Edgewood High School of the Sacred Heart. Go Crusaders. It comes in at about $13,000 a year. So (laughs) as boarding schools go, that's kind of low, I think. That's quite affordable compared to where Emily Post used to go. Woo! Yes, yes. Back at home, while Georgia was still away at school, Papa, through a series of unfortunate events, that is to say, every male relative he had dying of tuberculosis, uh, left him heir to great tracts of land and as quite the man of standing in the town. And when Georgia was 15, he took that as far as I'm concerned, radical step of moving his family back east to Williamsburg, Virginia, the anti-pioneer, the reverse Pa Ingalls, if you will, you know? (laughs) One source I read blamed it squarely on that tuberculosis curse, like running away to a different climate would spare him the fate of his family. 
Yeah, I actually read that in a couple different places. And one of them talks about a brochure that actually existed that said, quote, pneumonia and inflammatory diseases are rare and the absence of tuberculosis is well authenticated. So he's freaking out. Where can I go? And then there's this brochure that says, you won't get it here. Oh, let's go there. Mama Ida was all for it. You know, she's thinking, we're going to go back east. It's kind of civilized there. You know, William and Mary is in Williamsburg. Thomas Jefferson went to William and Mary. So she was all on board for this move. Well, new school time for Georgia. This time, the Chatham Hall Episcopal Institute, which really does seem like a finishing school to me, although they marketed themselves as academically rigorous for young ladies. But I'm thinking their bar was pretty low. Because one of George's classmates is on record as saying she couldn't wait to leave school and get married, at which time she'd give up her music and never turn her hand to one thing again for the rest of her life, which seems like the most boring existence I can imagine. <laughs> you know, that school is still there. Go what? Uh, go turtles. <laughs> turtles? Yes, there's, it's a very small school for very wealthy girls, I guess, because it comes in at about $53,000 a year. <laughs> That's Emily Post level right there. Yeah, there's only like 160 students, according to their website. You know, maybe they're more academically rigorous now, but at the time it yes. was a place where young ladies went um, to hold them until they got married. But Georgia even now wanted to be a professional artist and her parents must have accepted her drive, if not her chances, because art at the school was $20 extra a year, which is $630 extra. And they paid it. They paid it, and the facilities were just glorious. And Georgia had the run of the studio and the materials. Anytime she wasn't expected somewhere else, you could just go in there and be free. No one cared if she spent all her time in there. Now, her teacher, her art teacher, again, like most of her art teachers, meh, meh. And Georgia used to get so mad when this teacher would deign to correct something in one of her paintings. Like, who are you to correct me? The only thing that came out of this art class, besides the free time, which was in practice, you know, that's valuable. Um, her teacher showed her a jack in the pulpit, which is a pretty amazing flower. And they all got a really close up look at it. And Georgia dates her interest in magnification of flowers back to this teacher and this one class at her high school. She just stood out in the sea of ruffles. You know, she's very simply dressed and her hair, if she has a ribbon in it, it's only to hold it tight. And you know, she's got flat shoes on and everybody else is in all their ruffles and stuff. So she's not the typical Chatham school student. So hanging out in the art room was probably a very good thing for her. Well, of course the girls were put off by her at first. I mean, her accent, uh -huh. um, her clothes. She dressed like a boy, they said. She kind of wore these clunky boots that make me joyous for her. <laughs> and <laughs> no corset. Ooh, saucy. Uh, she was pretty oddly serious in this environment, but she won them over, I would say, with her a reverence. Like she was always one to pass you a note with a hilarious caricature of your teacher on it in the middle of class, you know, or lead people on an adventure into the forest against school rules to go draw nature. It was just so romantic. Think how Anne of Green Gables would have loved to follow Georgia O'Keeffe into the woods to draw nature. I mean, it was, oh. it was, if she let you go, you were in. Yes. And uh, later in life, she said that her, uh, I'm using the word motto, but she thought, quote, what can I do that I shouldn't do and not get caught? 
<laughs> and I also like how she passed off her power attitude to her classmates. They'd be walking and just, oh, it's so hot, fanning themselves with their hats. And the creek looks so refreshing. And she would basically be like, take off your dang shoes and go in. Stop being vaporous decorative objects and just take what you want. What does it hurt? I just love it. Yeah. <laughs> You would have hung out with her, that's for sure. You might have been her. All while killing it on grade. So what could the teachers really, really do? She became quite a popular figure at school. Um, She was never pretty. Exactly. She never thought so. I thought she was very, very striking. She's very good for photographs, too. Some people are pretty in person and photograph very badly. Mm-hmm. Her face was so good for photography, which makes me think it was a little angular in person. And she never understood how attractive she was i don't think and some of the girls said if only you'd been a boy you'd be so handsome yeah nice well she was slim she had dark hair and blue eyes she got that from her father so she had that kind of exotic look already personally she was just magnetic um her attitude at school was i'm just bound to seem wrong all the time anyway i'll just make the best of it and go on there's no sense agonizing you want to be wrong too come sit by me Yeah. She kind of reminded me of a cat, you know, Mm -hmm. like she was herself and and she did her thing. And, you know, if if people wanted to be around her, she'd let them. If you wanted to be thing adjacent. Yes. Come come along. <laughs> yes. That is but a I'm done with description. You. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as her finishing school was um, I guess finishing, a friend came to collect her from her studio, and there Georgia was feeding stacks of paintings and drawings into the heater. What are you doing? <laughs> she said, I don't want any of these floating around to haunt me later. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, burning all your stuff, that's pretty confident um, that you are going to be in a position where your old work will come back to haunt you. So that's Uh good. She never would really give her classmates any of her work. Same reason, I guess. Um, A couple of drawings of her closest friends got out into the world and she gave a couple out as graduation presents. But for the most part, her early work is Oblivion City. It's kind of sad to me. I threw away all the prequel Star Wars fanfic I wrote in junior high school. What I wouldn't give to have all that back. (laughs) I still have my diaries or my journals from age like 13 through high school. I mean, you have yours. I don't have mine. And I do. I'm so mad at previous me for throwing it away. And I wonder if Georgia O'Keeffe ever had even the slightest regret. And I'm thinking, no, like, please take my early work away. (laughs) Yeah, it was like a practice. Yeah. A a rough draft. We don't keep the rough draft of anything, right? I've got all my notes from this podcast still. (laughs) Well, I do too, but that's that's not a rough draft. I mean, the rough draft is like the first thing that you write and then you have to go back and fix it. You're right. You're right. Nevertheless, I want those notebooks back. (laughs) Okay. Less of me back to Georgia. She was immortalized in the yearbook. O is for O'Keefe. An artist divine. Her paintings are perfect and drawings are fine. So they liked her. They really, really liked her. (laughs) At 17, Georgia went to study at the extremely prestigious Art Institute of Chicago. Now, of course, it is an art museum, home of such works as American Gothic, which I practically fainted when I was standing in front of. It was like, I can't even imagine what movie star would give me that much of the vapors. American guy. Seeing that in person is something else. And also um, Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jette. Uh, Thanks, Ferris Bueller. Um, That famous painting from that scene in Ferris Bueller is there. Um, But at the time... 
it was a daring place for a young lady to be taught how to draw from life. That is to say, from life, do we know what that means? It means a room full of female students and one nearly 100% naked man on a platform. And I'm sure she wasn't the only one, but Georgia was so embarrassed by this that she'd run out in the hall (laughs) every time this happened. And she would later say that the only thing she ever learned at the Art Institute was to get to the point where she could stand to stick out a whole session with a new model. (laughs) I want to stick something in here. The building they were in, it used to be part of the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Their original building had been trashed in that fire, you know, the Great Chicago Fire. So they had funded it for the fair with the intention of moving in afterwards. I was just there in Chicago. As a matter of fact, I was very grateful to see it. And there is a lot less left of that World's Fair than you'd think. You kind of have to struggle to find things. Um, so anyway, she was not complimentary uh, of the continuation of what she saw as the same tired art exercises, you know, though the teachers seemed to think she was doing great and always ranked her first place among the women of her year. And I don't know. She didn't rank first among all the students, but she was the first female student. Isn't it kind of sad that you have to have these two categories? Mm-hmm. But there it is. A visit to her family at the new place changed the direction of her life. Far from being a haven, Virginia was proving to be sort of a tough road for old papa. His grain and feed store was not patronized by his snooty southern neighbors. Like, but who are his people? You know, <laughs> newcomers were not welcomed in this place. And so he was finding it a hard go. Financially, they were in getting into deep water, so much so that they took on what they called table boarders. Students from the college would come and eat their meals at the O'Keefe's house, which was very, it was like an 18 room house. It was huge. So they're, that's how low they're getting financially that they're taking in you know, outsiders to feed them. The move was a big mistake. I, I do. I mean, how do you to know? Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. You think you're going back east. You've bought a nice house. You're going to become genteel members of middle-class society in the civilized world. But it didn't work out that way. And there's just no way to tell ahead of time. Anyway, George's family was sort of sitting happily up at the top of the big slide on the shoots and ladder game board, I think, <laughs> is how I would describe that. He, they're teetering there. They're sitting happily. But mm, also, they had landed near some wetlands full of the sort of tropical diseases a person from Wisconsin is just not ready for. Malaria, for example, was rampant. Or sanitation-based problem diseases like typhoid fever, which got hold of Georgia and didn't let go for about four months. You know, nowadays, you'd get a 10-day course of antibiotics if you got typhoid at all. In the developed world, it's not a very common disease anymore. But in Georgia's day, tens of thousands of cases resulted in quite a few deaths. And Georgia lost her hair and her sense of direction, really. And it took her a whole year to get back on track after having contracted this disease. Well, um, Georgia said, forget them in Chicago. I am going to go to the glowing center of the art world. I am going to New York City. So she went to the Art Students League and enrolled where she lived in a boarding house with her friend. This is 1906. She's 19. Surely we've had independent people operating like this before, but I don't know why this is striking me so much, I guess. Is it a surprise because she comes from this solid middle-class family and there's no 
urgency requiring her to be independent early. It's because, you know, Lucille Ball bailed at, what, 14 and went and set up her operation. Clara Bow mm-hmm. got out at 15. Now, Clara Bow had to get out. But like all these ladies we had talked about, for some reason, Georgia was striking me as it was surprising that she peace outed and went to live in New York City by herself. So anyway, um, we're all glad she did it. Well, here's yeah. something that she never experienced before. She's not a big fish in a small pond anymore. It's like when all the 4.0s get to Harvard and have an identity <laughs> crisis, like, oh no, I am not the best. In fact, everyone is equally best as me. Um, you have to get through that, I think. I'd be interested to know if you've been to an Ivy League and had that crisis yourself, please send me a note. Um, luckily, uh, she got just the right inspiration at just the right time in her development right here. Her teacher, William Merritt Chase, he had a philosophy that I really admire too about art. Be decisive, be absorbent, stop agonizing. And he would make them do what I call the speed round. I don't know what his term for it was, but they did a painting a day. Just go, go, go. Just paint on top of the one from yesterday. Just let the ideas flow through you. Don't stop. Don't worry about your technique. You just have to get through it. It was kind of like the art version of NaNoWriMo. (laughs) I'm laughing because I have exactly the same thing written down. Oh, okay. That's funny. (laughs) Well, it's just like, you know, don't let the mechanics stop you, you know, and you you can get a lot of practice that way. He was also a big fan of the artistic persona, which I think Georgia already had down, but I can just see him like so many of my theater teachers, you know, grand gestures and flipping back his cape. Uh (laughs) He actually did have a cape, so I must have known him spiritually. Um, I picture him as this big old Pavarotti. Like, Georgia thought maybe for the first time in her life that here she had found a good inspirational teacher. I love it. Also, he was after them, especially his women students. Do not let anyone tell you that art is not a profession. It is. And I think the young women students really did need to hear that in this day and age. Although I have a feeling really everyone was kind of being steered toward graphic design or um, especially the ladies teaching. You know, let's leave that to the side because otherwise Georgia was really kind of swimming in good natured misogyny, except for this teacher. One of her fellow students, a man, said, I'll be a famous painter one day and you'll be teaching in some girls school. Oh, Chachi, if only you'd had a crystal ball. (laughs) He actually did become a famous painter. I mean, not George O'Keefe famous. His name is Eugene Spiker. Have you heard of him? No. No, I had to look him up, but he was award-winning. I mean, he was, and he wasn't wrong about the other part either. (laughs) That is true, but not ultimately. No, he was just trying to get her to pose for him. Well, well, um, the league was like any college. Seems to me you can focus on academics or you can focus on partying. The choice is up to you. And um, Georgia once said that every night after she went out dancing, she didn't do good work for a few days afterward. (laughs) I feel you, sister. Uh, And also, I love the thought of just the raw energy of finally being around like-minded people for the first time. It always blows you away. You get to college and, you know, my experience with theater people, you know, you have some people in high school that kind of like it and you hang out in the theater room and eat your lunch or whatever. But then you get to college 
and people are just absorbing it and living it and going out to other people doing theater and taking you to comedy shows. And it's just is a new whole new world. And I really envy all of the kids going to college for experiencing that for the first time. Mm-hmm. So. And that's what she did so much so that she was called Patsy because she was like this Irish Patsy O'Keefe, you know, the fun Irish girl that goes out dancing and drinking. And so she did all that social stuff up to a point when she realized, like you said, it started to affect her work, <laughs> which is something all freshmen need to learn. Right. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that's what freshman year really should be. Just like balancing one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Georgia and the rest of the baby gang heard about a crazy show of Rodin drawings down at this cool gallery called 291. And we have to go check this out. Also, the guy that owns it is super fun to wind up. So let's go do it. He's such a hoot when he gets mad. Like, okay. So she was not impressed by the art when she got there. She thought it was a lot of squiggles, really. And nor was she impressed by the gallery owner, one Alfred Stieglitz, who is true to form, just like they said, gotten a little head up and was raking his hands through his sticky up hair and arguing with everyone and pounding the table. You know, no, thank you. She just went and sat by the door until everyone was ready to go. This is like, (laughs) oh, so uncomfortable. (laughs) Like when I went to a jazz club once and everyone was clicking their fingers and I thought, "Mm, I'm out. (laughs) I have never been to one like that. You know, I I appreciate that you yourselves like it. And I only wish I had been the one to drive like that. (laughs) So um, she had to wait till everyone decided to go home. And um, so there's the illustrious meeting of two kindred spirits, (laughs) which is the anti-meet cute, really the uh, huh, whatever meet cute. (laughs) More on him later. As of now, he's a zero as far as we're concerned. So not so other men, let's call it Lake George Magic, she'd won an award to study at kind of a artist summer camp run by a patron of the arts. And while she was there, she met a man named George Dannenberg, who was sort of the first of the serious boyfriends, I think, that Georgia had over the course of her youth. He was more of a kindred spirit than any of the ministers Mama kept urging forward as suitors, like putting her hand on Georgia's back. Look, he's nice. He has steady work. (laughs) They had a serious correspondence that lasted a decade, I will tell you. But, you know, as his life could move on, he could go out in the world. He can go anywhere. Hers was constrained by her gender, her family duties, her lack of money. He once wrote to her to ask her to come to Europe with him. And Georgia said later, if that man had come to her in person and asked her to go away with him to Europe, she would probably have married him. And we would have had anonymous George and Georgia. I don't think I could take it. Danberg. <laughs> um, so we didn't end up with George and Georgia, but they were such good friends. But I just wanted to be clear early that Georgia had a lot, a lot of romantic opportunities. There were many, a lot of close female friendships. Um, you'll read a whole bunch of her as this cantankerous loner that I think is a mischaracterization of her personality. Nevertheless, it does seem that no matter how deep her friendships were, and however far these romantic entanglements went, ultimately, Georgia always chose art throughout her whole life. Mm-hmm. So George's family had begun their slide from square number 87 on the shoots and ladders board. 
That's the big one. That's the one when you're playing with a small child that you sometimes let them skip. Just so the game's over. You know, you're like, oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so her father had had an unsuccessful foray into making cinder blocks for sale, which no one wanted in the home of fabulous brick construction. And so he built a house out of them for his family to live in. The capital was disappearing. This move had been a giant, giant mistake. Papa could not afford to send Georgia back to school in New York. And I don't want you to think he's a Bronson Alcott at all, at all, at all. Mr. O'Keefe worked like the Dickens. He diversified. He tried a lot of stuff. It wasn't like he was just hoping for the best or anything. He really tried to change his fate. And she could see how bad things were. And she decided that she would have to just get busy and make her own life. So she headed back to Chicago, not to the Art Institute this time, but to work as a commercial artist. It's got artist in the title, right? (laughs) It's like kind of her dream. And really, for the next two years, I guess the only thing that could be said positively is that she got very good at drawing lace, (laughs) very detailed illustrations. But she did it all day. She lived with her her aunt and uncle who were brother and sister and just went to work. That aunt was the one that worked as a proofreader at a newspaper. And I think that's a role model. She was working in a man's world, uh, which I thought was cool. So anyway, there's a little bit of a role model, but um, you'll read and don't believe it. You'll read that Georgia O'Keeffe created the logo for Dutch Girl Cleanser, which was kind of like the Windex, the 409 of its day, the most famous cleanser commercially available, you know. Um, We'll put that on the Pinterest so you can look at it. But even though there's lore galore about this, Georgia never claimed to have done it. And the manufacturer actually gives credit to someone else, Mm -hmm. one Maud Sutherland. So is this a desire by biographers to make Georgia's tedious years there mean something? I don't know. It did mean something. She went to work every day. She drew for a career and she learned that it was tedious work <laughs> and that she didn't like it. So it is an important two years, I think. Well, she wrote to her friend that, quote, this life is too high of a price just to make a living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, she was saved from this office by the measles, <laughs> <laughs> which now mostly appear in storybooks. But before 1963, when you got a vaccine, it could blind you which is terrifying for a young artist. And her vision was affected. It made the detail work impossible for her. And she had to move back home to convalesce. It wasn't a permanent effect in her case, but she got home to find just Papa in the Cinderblock house. What is happening? Well, your mother and the rest of the family had to move to a drier climate because your mother has contracted tuberculosis. He was so afraid of the one thing he was afraid of was contracting tuberculosis when they moved there. And that's what Mama Ida got instead. Yeah, at this time it was a death sentence. And they think she probably got it not from any miasma in Virginia, but as she had been the one that had nursed the last brother to die of tuberculosis, it hibernates that uh, disease. It hibernates and emerges later. And they think she probably picked it up way back in Wisconsin. Um, And it just emerged now. And doesn't it seem like the gods are just punching this family in the face? Yes. I don't know. Well, now as a background for the next almost a decade, Georgia taught art from the elementary to college level, different places, Virginia, South Carolina, Texas. While this was happening, 
there's so much back and forth. We're going to spare you the play-by-play. Georgia studied and worked with two artists that influenced her, two teachers, Alan Bement and Arthur Wesley Dow, who inspired both her teaching methods and her own work. She was introduced to modernism, to multiculturalism. Don't copy what's sitting in front of you. Express your ideas about it in an emotional and harmonious way. And there was all of this art energy, this new energy swirling around. And though she genuinely did enjoy teaching most of the time, you know, you don't enjoy it all the time, anything. (laughs) For example, as a matter of fact, she once sent a sketch of a cracked hole in the wall to her friend Anita explaining, this is where I'd kick the wall in frustration because I'm surrounded by dumbass. That's that's not the word she used. Exactly. I didn't read that quote. (laughs) But so, you know, it wasn't all roses and happiness. Um, a visit to stay in New York exposed her to more modernists. Picasso, Barack, the world was shifting. And something inside Georgia O'Keeffe was shifting too. She wrote, I grew up pretty much as everyone else grows up. And one day found myself saying to myself, I can't live where I want to. I can't go where I want to. I can't do what I want to. I can't even say what I want to. School and things that painters have taught me even keep me from painting as I want to. There and then, I decided I was a very stupid fool not to at least paint as I wanted to. Yeah, it really flipped her brain around. The world was not exactly accepting the new movements that she was starting to be attracted to. There is a famous art show in New York City referred to as the Armory Show. And we're going to refer you to a Bowery Boys podcast about it so you can get all the details. Let's just say that some art was shown that was so revolutionary to art students in New York and the average Joe that they started rioting. And burning those artists in effigy, people were het up. (laughs) (laughs) I I just don't understand it. Um, It costs lots of emotional distress. If art's supposed to make you feel something, well, check. You know, (laughs) there's Georgia. You know, heading straight for that. (laughs) You know, everybody else is like, no, no, this is not art, and she's going, yes, give me that. So the timing of that revolutionary artistic breakthrough of hers seems to be pretty perfect. And this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what that breakthrough led to. Georgia has had a breakthrough as to how she intends to proceed with her art and influences of modernism are swirling around her. So through these influences or just percolating self-expression or as one source I read theorized because of a broken heart, Georgia started a whole new series of drawings that were just black and white charcoal abstracts, no color just shapes and motion in a style entirely new, as Jane Austen once said. She says she was drawing the shapes that appeared in her mind 
So instead of copying what she was seeing, she was just drawing these images of what she was seeing, what she was feeling about that object. And she covered her room with paper and just went crazy with the charcoal. Georgia sent a big packet of these drawings up to her friend Anita Pollitzer in New York City. She'd been sending things there from time to time for feedback. That's kind of surprising to me because you know how she didn't like things leaving her hands and circulating. Mm -hmm. She must have really trusted that friend. But whoa, this time when Anita opened her mail, she found not the quote ugly and unbalanced work that Georgia had been so frustrated with while she was trying to come to grips with this new way of thinking. But Georgia, you've said something. You've you've gotten there. You ought to burst into tears right now. (laughs) Yeah, she had been getting these drawings of Georgia's every once in a while. And Anita was just the encouraging friend. Like, you're almost there. I like what you're doing with this. Keep going. But when this collection of drawings came in, Anita really thought, wow, you got there. This Anita, she was fascinating to me. Very active in the suffrage movement and a, a real... Uh, power. I mean, she had a lot of energy and she knew how to direct it. And this time Anita took those pictures and put them under her arm and took them to go see Peter Pan. (laughs) It was only going to play for a month. (laughs) After Peter Pan, she took the drawings (laughs) in the rain. This is the part that's blowing my mind. In the rain, she took them over to their friend Alfred Stieglitz at 291 and said, you need to see these. So this man, we've met him briefly before at his gallery was just the hub of the new art movement. His praise would mean so much to Georgia. Like I feel about Ira Glass, although I don't have a relationship with Ira Glass. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Georgia actually said, I believe I'd rather have Stieglitz like something, anything I had done than anyone else I know. Well, that's how I feel about Ira Glass. Someone take my podcast, Ira Glass. I'm just kidding. (laughs) What she had actually said to Anita, however, was don't show these to anyone. Well, you know, she's got to approve of people breaking the rules because she's the one that's going to break them herself. Well, now, since he is about to become so important to this story, let me tell you a very tiny bit about Stieglitz. He was born in 1864, which is the same year as George's mother. So he's 24 years older than she was. His parents had emigrated from Germany with both money and position. They were a Jewish family whose children had given up on Judaism and were simply passing in the world of high society at this point. He had a powerful father and emotionally generous mother on the outside. But within the household, his father was sleeping with the upstairs maid. He was abusive to his long-suffering wife. And it really marked Stieglitz. It really did. He, as a profession, took up photography as a young man and was now engaged in making the world see photography as an art form and not as simply mechanically recording something that existed in the world, you know, like, and that is what it looks like. That's the equivalent of all those realistic painters that wanted to paint exactly what they saw, you know, bowls of fruit that looked exactly like bowls of fruit. You could almost take one right out of the picture, you know. (laughs) So that's the photography was kind of seen as that. And of course, the painters are like, well, now that there's photography, why do you even need realists as painters? They're obsolete. Ooh. And that's why the modernist movement was moving forward. And he was fighting for the other direction. Photography can also be artistic. It was very interesting, all the currents that were flowing in the art world at this time. 
Yeah, it was. And they were in New York, which was like, you know, the hub of the United States as far as art is concerned. Well, he married the heiress to the Rheingold Beer Empire to save her reputation after she fell asleep on his shoulder after an evening carriage ride. You guys, that is something else. (laughs) That is something else. Yes, he did. That's kind of very conventional for him, you know, to get married like that. Well, he needed the money to support his art. Well, and it should surprise no one that they were not compatible because when that's all you got is that she likes to snore and drool on your shoulder, (laughs) that's not a basis of a good relationship. She really only cared for society. I mean, really, in her defense, that's what she'd been brought up to care about. But he was passionate about art, which she found so boring. By the time Georgia met him, he was a force. He was a force in the New York City art world. He was a gallery owner. He was a patron. And I, I've been calling him champion of the noob, which is, of course, a video game reference. Like when a guy just starts the game, he knows nothing. He knows no one. He has no equipment. He has no resources. And sometimes experienced players in art or video games can be awful mean to the noobs. Um, so he was actually very nice to people that were just starting out and helped them a lot. So like a great friend, this is the guy Anita decided to take them to, to be brave. You know, they'd flirted a long time, Anita and Stiglitz, by the way. So she had an entree. She's like, hi, look at my ankle. And also these pictures. (laughs) I don't think it needs to be said that Stiglitz flirted a lot. (laughs) Yes, yes. So Mr. Stiglitz unrolled the packet, which had escaped damage in the rain, thank goodness, and being crumbled at Peter Pan, and called them, quote, the purest finest, sincerest things that have been in 291 in a long while. So Anita went back to her friend and said, you will not believe what Stieglitz said. At first I thought, oh my gosh, George is going to be pissed because she said not to show them. But she wasn't. She was grateful. She was grateful that her friend knew her well enough to, to share these. I know. Wasn't that nice of Anita? We owe a great debt to Anita Pollitzer, don't we? Yes. Unsung heroes of art. I'm just going to slip in another debt that we owe. She's credited with convincing Harry Beam, who was the swing vote for the 19th Amendment. She's credited with convincing him to vote for the women's vote. His mother takes credit, too, but she's involved. So we can give her credit for that. Mr. Beam, look at my ankle. Vote for this thing. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm totally teasing. That's not how that went down. No, not at all. Not at all. (laughs) Okay, so Georgia and Mr. Stieglitz began a correspondence. Unbeknownst to Georgia, he actually mounted an exhibition of her charcoal work at 291. She only found out in a roundabout way. Someone, she was in New York, and someone came to her and said, hey, do you know Virginia O'Keefe? Because there's a whole exhibition down there at 291. Maybe that's someone you know? And she's like, I do believe that those are my pictures. And she went there in person to demand that he take them off the walls. And he told her in no uncertain terms that she had no more right to keep these from the public eye than she did to kill someone. And there they stay, my friend. You know how in acting auditions, they do this thing called the chemistry test. So, you know, you can act your face off, but if you get with the leading man and there's nothing, they won't cast you or him, you know, whoever, whoever has the better agent. (laughs) Well, in this case, there was that zing that you look for, a meeting of their minds, I think, only their minds so far, because Stieglitz was a married man and Georgia was... (laughs) I'm sorry. Like it stopped him. (laughs) Well, yeah. It would stop her. I think it would stop her. Yeah? No? Uh, 
evidently not for very well, long. But no, yes. no. <laughs> well, Georgia was deeply emotionally involved anyway with a man named Arthur McMahon, who she almost married, and who is sort of credited with inspiring all those swirling feelings that had created those drawings in the first place. That's a big question mark to me. Uh, could be. She herself, though, wrote that, you know, the emotions of true love had caused some of these drawings to just leap out of her mind. So um, I guess I have to take her word for it. She also said that one of them was a, she had a splitting headache and she painted what she was experiencing. Yes. <laughs> take inspiration where you can find it, I say. Oh, yeah. So Georgia's mother did die and Georgia retreated to a job in the desert of Texas where she moved angrily out of her boarding house because of the tacky rose wallpaper. <laughs> Into an unfinished attic in another building. Uh, that is just so her. Well, she kept working, now in watercolor, with kind of a limited palette of color. Mostly blue. I mean, black, obviously. But mostly black and blue. And was really just shocked when Stieglitz began interpreting her work as sexual expression. By the way, you know everyone does this. If you know anything about Georgia O'Keeffe, it's, ooh, that iris is just really lady parts. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what yeah. everyone knows. <laughs> Um, it's like, he, 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 you know, a little bit of a giggle. But the fact is, I assure you, the artist herself meant them to be flowers and lines. And she had 60 years of trying to talk people out of interpreting her paintings as erotic fantasy land. And if she couldn't do it, I'm not sure what chance we have over here at the History Chicks. But just so it's out there and we're clear, Stieglitz and history are titillated and Georgia is not amused. Georgia will not be amused to know that in, you know, 2018, my 13 year old son picked up one of my research books and was flipping through it and saw a partially open clamshell and just started giggling like a 13 year old boy and taking pictures of it for his Snapchats for his friends and giving them, quote, <laughs> art history lessons. So, <laughs> sorry, oh Georgia, it's still happening. I, I talked him out of it a little bit, but yeah, you can't. Once you see that, it's hard to go back. Well, maybe it's subconsciously there. In fairness, flowers and clamshells, nature's <laughs> items have many resemblances to each other. Yes. Is that Mother Nature's fault? I don't know. Well, it seems to me that we'd better take the artist's word for it. Although I am going to link you to a very inappropriate clip from Family Guy. <laughs> That basically says the same thing. So more on this in a bit, actually. There is something that happens um, here in a minute that kind of helps to cement this problem for Georgia. So throughout her life, she would always, in fact, wonder what drew people to her work. Like she was confident about where it came from, but never understood the viewer's response to it. It's a sort of doubt that's very common to creative people. Stieglitz put on a show which kind of blew her mind, a solo show of George's new works, all of this new blue and black stuff. And Georgia sold her first piece for $400. That was the last show, in fact, that was ever held at 291. It was the dawning of the realization that art itself could be her livelihood. She was still teaching. This just didn't seem like a real possibility before. She encountered a piece of art hanging on the back of Stieglitz's door once and was surprised to see that it had sold and thought, things like this could sell? Of course, of course they can. This is this is a movement, Georgia. You don't understand. This is where art's going. And when she sold her first picture for $400, she started to realize it could be her passion, you know, and, and how she spent her free time. But she doesn't have to teach to keep food on the table. 
I mean, maybe, maybe there's another way. And it, it was surprising to her, I guess. Um, you know, you always had a little dream in the back of your heart, but this kind of brought it to the forefront. Like, look, girl, this is possible. She was teaching for a couple of years. The correspondence was going back and forth between her and Stieglitz. And finally, he convinced her to move to New York. Coincidentally, she had the flu. So she left another job because she was sick. And, <laughs> and she moved up to New York for permanent to pursue a career as an artist. Now, he would give her a place to live, he said. His niece, Elizabeth, had vacated her apartment and she could have it. And, well, she might have actually deflected a proposal of marriage by the way, um, right before she came to New York. This is interesting to me. <laughs> she seems like she's running not to something necessarily, but away from something uncomfortable also. She's running away from a marriage proposal because it's uncomfortable, but she's running into the arms of a man who's still married. <laughs> yes. Within a month, they were practically living together. Crazy bohemians. Yeah. But yeah, he had, uh, his wife knew about it and she kind of gave him an ultimatum and said, get rid of that O'Keefe woman or we're done. And two hours later he was closing the door with his last box packed up yeah although he hung up a sheet between their twin beds in case anyone stopped by it would be i'm like no that would fool no one my friend <laughs> What he started to do was take photographs of Georgia. And she was a willing model. He was taking parts of her body, you know, her belly button or her hands or her breasts or, you know, just art photographs. And she was a willing model. And I don't believe that he was entirely planning to exploit these photographs, but he was just exploring his art at this point. Well, they're very artistic. I don't want you guys to get the idea that they're like penthouse or whatever. Mm -hmm. Though, um, the subject matter wasn't ultimately going to help her erase everyone's interpretation of her own art as sexual. Also, in those years before air conditioning, Georgia often painted in the nude because anyone that lives in an old building can tell you all the heat goes up and she lived on the top floor. So the nudity ran through their whole lives. <laughs> well, um, Stieglitz left his wife, began a new life with Georgia, 24 years his junior. And um, he and their relationship really made her feel beautiful for the first time. The way that he looked at her while he was photographing her really touched her soul, I think. And she started a new series. She began to paint in oil, which she would continue to use as her main medium for the rest of her life and began to trust her own decisions, her own preferences. I mean, even her right to have decisions and preferences. She now, for example, used a glass palette so that her colors would stay perfect. She kept meticulous records of how she mixed all the colors on an index card file. She used a different brush for each color. She began to develop her own techniques and her own ways of doing things. And this was when she started doing those flower pictures we're all so familiar with. Though, would it surprise you to learn that out of over the 2,000 surviving pictures, I have to say surviving, you know. Only about 200 are these flowers. Mm -hmm. Although based on every Georgia O'Keeffe calendar you ever find, you'd think she did nothing but that. Yeah, I was surprised to find that too. I was like, am I reading this right? I had to read it a couple of times. I'm like, oh yeah, look at that. Because that's all you think of. You think of a little bit of the stuff she did later, but you think of those flowers, or at least I do. Because yeah. maybe I'm a flower person. 
you know, I don't know. Well, those are the ones that just made it into the public consciousness. The radical thing here was the scale of them, you know, flowers in art, bah, you know, same old, anyone's got flowers, you know, but, but a flower that was four feet high, well, that was close up. Well, that would just arrest you as you walked in a room. And ultimately that was her goal with those flowers. She wanted somebody to stop. She wanted their mouth to drop open and we're so jaded now. So accepting of what art can be that we forget all the rebels it took to get us here. Though I still don't get Mark Rothko confession time. You can... You can beat me. I do not get Mark Rothko. Georgia would, though, because she once framed a plain old piece of black fabric and called it, quote, a fine ornament to the room. So Rothko, painter of rectangles, is right up her alley. <laughs> well, anyway, so so the radical thing was that she would get the viewer's eye right up inside that flower, magnifying it as an object. You know, um, the pictures of flowers themselves, like the canvases, started out a little small, but they got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger with time. So she actually, the, the main big ones didn't come out till, you know, the mid 20s, but she's already experimenting as she does she takes a subject and then like tries different ways to approach the same subject so you'll see a lot of repetitive themes in her work as she is trying to understand and work out her theme it's kind of neat actually Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree because you can see how it, her thought process and that's just the ones that are still here. Even before that, things that we'll never see because they, they cease to exist. You know, she was still working out you know, how the flower was going to be placed on the canvas and the colors and just the whole thing. It's just really interesting. And then she just kept working just like when she was a kid. She mm-hmm. just kept working at it. Well, Stieglitz's circle, now that the gallery was gone, often took to meeting up at their apartment or out at a restaurant. And Georgia found herself swimming in a sea of literary conversations and arguments about art. They called it the round table. Uh, well, like the Algonquin round table. (laughs) Everybody has a round table. Well, I am not sure I've said this before, but I want to say it now that Georgia was a voracious reader, like her mother. I mean, the classics, philosophy. Wow, did she love philosophy? I can't get around it. When Freud came around, she loved reading all that stuff too. Art theory, history. I think she was always trying to teach herself things. She was a person who consumed everything she saw and heard and her I think her art was what happened to all the stuff after her senses and her her mind had processed it it's like a digestive process but just with her hands <laughs> no I that's I think that's spot on some yeah. of this art gang the round table they criticized her work especially since it was flowers and minimized her by calling her a quote woman painter but honestly she had really ceased to take art advice from anybody not even Stieglitz really who acted like a cat on a stovetop whenever she tried something new that guy <laughs> man he liked things to stay the same same clothes she was always saying like he made makes me go to all over the city for this one kind of underwear that he likes. He just won't wear them. Like, I kind of know. My son does the same thing. But he's not my husband. Um, <laughs> and he did wear a cape, too, by the way. Same food he liked. He always told people that they were 90% alike. And so this must be the 10% difference because Georgia sure had a willingness to experiment. He used to brag, I'm a real stick in the mud. The mud's got a passionate hold on me. Like, is that something to brag about? I don't know. <laughs> Especially if you're an artist. (laughs) I guess. Well, they spent summers at the Stieglitz family property in Lake George, New York. That is another habit 
he he liked to go only two places. He liked to be in New York and he liked, you know, New York City and he liked to be in Lake George. And Stieglitz's mother <laughs> had banned his wife from going there years ago, which I think is funny. It's very funny. You have to imagine this is they have this huge house on the lake. And the whole family converges on it. Brothers and sisters and cousins and their children. In the summertime, it's just this big happening family party, which in one regard sounds fantastic. In another, if you're an artist <laughs> who likes her privacy and her quiet, it's not so great. Yeah, uh... I mean, at least the mother accepted Georgia. She could see that her son was happier. That's pretty mm-hmm. much all she she needed. But, you know, there were holdouts in the family like, how dare he, blah, 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 married woman. And his own daughter was very anti-Georgia. So that family argued and slammed doors and was stomping around with their big feet and always wanted to drag people out for picnics and, you know, come outside for this, come outside for that. She really didn't get too much work done until she insisted on making a studio in the back. And even then, you know, you don't really have your leisure to paint. No, but she did. She took over an old, it was an old barn or a shed. She called it the shanty. And it was her studio. It was kind of an escape pod too. You know, if she could sneak away, she did. Sometimes people overwhelm me to the point where I go into another room and lay on the floor. There, there's a confession for you. Oh, I believe it. That uh, happens to me. I have to leave. I will go to the bathroom, even if I don't have to go to the bathroom. And I'm an extrovert. Georgia was prolific at Lake George. Um, Fruit nature, the barn, the shanty. She complained that Stieglitz was a slave driver, asking her to work, 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 work. But, you know, it was her natural inclination anyway. I mean, she'd always get in this vortex, just like Joe March of Little Women and create, create, create. And then suddenly it's like, foo, the air would just go out of the balloon. And she'd be found just like lying on the grass or she took to pruning the roses or mixing up preserves in the kitchen or just frankly asleep in a chair. Like she had to just leave it behind and go do something else. I can respect that too. Yeah. Yeah. You had to. I mean, she's an artist. She has to experience things. She actually wanted them to like break up the New York City, upstate New York thing and go to Maine. She took a trip up there by herself and she loved it. Coastal Maine. But he wanted no part of it. It's like, nope. This is what we do. It's working. Let's keep doing it. So she just kept painting. Lots of greens, lots of blues. <laughs> yeah, he's not the man for changing location. No, not at all. What he was the man to do was marketing. And he was kind of creating Georgia's image with people. You know, she was doing the art. The art could speak for itself. But he was creating her, we would call it a brand. You know, what she was like selling the artist. And then the art. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. Yes. So everybody likes to have a story behind something. So I learned that when I was selling antiques. If you can come up with a true story about where it came from or what it's for or how it got to be used, it would, you, people would be more likely to buy it. Mm-hmm. I believe it. I believe it. So what he did to further this image along is he staged a show of some of his own work, which he didn't show very often. And in that uh, hundred or so images were 45 of those nudes that he had taken of Georgia, which 
kind of established her as this free thinking, comfortable with her own body, creative sorts. It just would have been cool if she knew about it. <laughs> I will say that the titillated reaction to her oh, role in this show unnerved her greatly. Yes, because people were looking at her body and they weren't seeing her as an artist. Yeah, but the critics began also to revisit her older work in this context. So he's created this brand as a free spirit sexual being. And after all, Stieglitz, who had taken these nude pictures that were full of, um, well, I mean, imagery, yes, but like the look in her eye, there just seemed to be an erotic nature to these pictures when people viewed them that way. He was still married to his wife. Oh, ho. <laughs> she was going viral for all the wrong reasons as far as she was concerned. Like there was a critic that wrote, her art is gloriously female. Her great painful and ecstatic climaxes make us at last know something that man has always wanted to know. Women should always judge, always feel through the womb. All is ecstasy. Ecstasy of pain as well as ecstasy of fulfillment. In her, the ice of polar regions and the heat of tropical spring tides meet and mingle. Like, blurg. <laughs> I don't like publicity, no. she said. It embarrasses me. Yeah, me too. I wouldn't like yeah. that said about me either. No, not at all. She even said, and I quote, I get a queer feeling of being invaded when I read such things about myself. Do you blame her? She wants to be read on the canvas, not read like that, you know? I think she started to develop a little hard shell. I think her feeling is, you know, how dare they say things like she is the very embodiment of woman. Like she was his muse, kind mm. of, for yes. others to be inspired by. Take me seriously. They insist on placing me in the clouds. When, in fact, I love beefsteak and I love rare beefsteak at that. I am real. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, you know, uh, anyway, well, it, it was very frustrating. At the same time, yeah, and he's painting her as this, you know, genius artist, this Midwestern goddess kind of persona. And she's like, I'm very down to earth. <laughs> That's yeah. not me. Yeah. She had her first solo exhibition. It was called 100 Pictures, Georgia O'Keeffe, when she was 36, which was supremely well attended due, maybe, to her previous unwanted notoriety. But she sold 20 pieces during that show. That's huge. Now, it seems to me that as Georgia became more famous, you know what? I'm not even going to go there. I'm not going to go to famous. What I mean, I I think is as Georgia became more herself. That's what I mean. Yes. Now that I'm just saying it out loud to see which I believe. Yes. As Georgia became more herself, I think Stieglitz became more clingy and like Victorian husband like kind of wanting to be the boss more than he ever had and also bad behaviouring it up with some young women of his acquaintance. Maybe there were a couple of affairs in here. Certainly there was other nude photography. Uh, it's hard for me not to get upset by this part. Like he couldn't handle, like he felt like he'd created a monster or something that was getting a little out of her station. Does that make yeah. sense? Oh, well, and was eclipsing him. Yeah. For as much as he was supportive of her art and he understood it. They got along, you know, on personally, fantastically. I think he was still had that ego problem and she's getting more famous for her art, famous, well-known, and he's he's in the shadows. He's the guy behind the woman when it should be the woman behind the man, right? Oh, yes. I guess if you're a Victorian, that's mm -hmm. definitely how it goes. Well, on a personal 
level here, Georgia had mentioned that she wanted to have a baby before it was too late for her. She is in her mid to upper 30s and he absolutely forbade it because he said it would take time away from her painting if she went pottering around with babies. And of course, it will, I say, as a (laughs) mother that had a baby that didn't sleep until he was, what, seven years old? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, surely that's a time bargain she'd taken into account. She had wanted children for a very long time. And I do think one of her almost getting married was based on the desire for children more than anything else. But again, Art took precedence at that time too. But he already had a daughter who was now a grown woman named Kitty who hated the Air Georgia breed. And maybe he was afraid that a new baby would make his relationship with his daughter worse. Or maybe he was jealous of what would happen if a baby came and took half her love from him or, okay, I'm going to be fair. Maybe he was just 62 and and didn't want to start over. Yeah, Um, because he had a daughter and she didn't even invite him to her wedding. That's how cold and distant she was. And part of him must have been thinking, we bring another kid in. That's just one more creature on this planet that's going to hate me. Why would I want to do that to myself? Well, I, you know... I get it. It was the bitterest disappointment in George's life. Um, But she went along with it. Well, you can't make someone start a family if they're so against it. I can't even make my husband uh, husband get a kitten. I know. I I had the same thing. I found a shelter dog that I really wanted to bring home. And my husband's like, no, 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 no. And my friends are going, just go get it. He'll warm to it. And I'm like, "Uh uh-uh. He doesn't want it in this house. Yes, I understand that. Well, I will say that resentment never left her as far as I'm concerned. I have a friend who has an only child, not by choice. Mine was a goal (laughs) from childhood, but hers was not. She desperately wanted more children and her husband did not. And I think she will carry that anger with her to her grave. I mean, in some way, you move on, you're put on your big girl panties and you move on. And and maybe I'm projecting that onto Georgia, fair or not. But I she expressed many times throughout the rest of her life that she had always wanted children. Mm-hmm. Flip side, she knew what she was getting into because he wasn't shy about the kid thing from, you know, day one. That he did not want any more children. It wasn't something he, you know, kept close to his heart and then sprung it on her. She knew. Well, I know, but then you you have to make that choice again between like, well, do I ditch true love and go out and try to find a baby daddy or do, you know, like mm-hmm. that's a hard decision too. It's not easily made, I don't think. Yeah. And I don't think that she is even the kind of person that would have, you know, uh, um, oh, whoops, look what happened. Because I mean, you know, they they were doing the thing that you do to have babies, but she wasn't getting pregnant. So she could have accidentally gotten pregnant, but I don't think she was the kind of person that would do that see the cat and the dog in our houses. (laughs) Right. Well, Stieglitz's divorce became final six years after Georgia and Stieglitz began their relationship. I will say his wife had brothers and they were really trying to protect the family fortune. So it took a long time and he wanted to get married immediately afterward to Georgia. Why was her position? (laughs) Especially if we're not going to be parents, just leave things as they are. I can earn my own keep. I don't have to depend on you for money as a husband. And he just insisted that's what one does. He wanted to be married. And finally, she agreed, but she refused to change her name. I've worked hard for my name, Georgia O'Keefe, and I am not going to disappear as a Mrs. Stieglitz. That's kind of radical for the Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And even, you know, it probably doesn't even need to be said that she took the obey out of the vows. (laughs) Yes. Well, Laura Ingalls Wilder took it out too. That's right. Well, they were married by a justice of the peace with just a couple of witnesses and got into a car crash on the way home. Well, if that isn't symbolism. (laughs) 
Uh, well, and I will say every relationship has its trials and nobody knows what really happens in a marriage unless you're in it. A move to an apartment high up in this skyscraper seemed to kind of galvanize both of them into a period of inspiration. Stiglitz opened another gallery called The Room. Isn't that funny? He was like naming clubs cool things before that Saturday Night Live skit. Have you ever seen that? Me? No. He's like, the newest club opened up and it's called Gee. Oh, no. I or whatever. Know. It's so hilarious. And half the time that actor can't even keep his face from laughing while oh, he's trying funny. to get through his bit. Well, anyway, so he had a he had a knack for cool names. And um, Georgia became an expert in staging exhibitions. Um, she's the one to go to for hanging in arranging the flow of how the show went. And her own work gets so radical here. As far as I'm concerned, she started to paint the city. Um, from on high. And lots of artists are saying, oh, the city, you can't capture it in a painting. It's too difficult, blah, blah, blah. There is a painting called East River from the 30th story of the Shelton Hotel that hardly looks like her work at all. Mm-hmm. It's so um, strange to me. I am definitely putting that on the Pinterest. It really... Honestly, I would not have picked that as a Georgia O'Keeffe at all. Now, however, a series of paintings of skyscrapers, she did a different series. Actually, some of my favorite work of hers does look like hers. There's one called The Shelton with Sunspots, which to me looks like she took inspiration directly from photography because it has those little circles, you know, that you get when you look through a lens at the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of amazing the way the light is. So I'll put these all on the Pinterest. Audio mediums are hard to talk about art. <laughs> I know. No kidding. There's one of her pieces. It's called Music or Blue Blue Music, Blue and Green Music. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know the one you mean. Yeah. And it, I'm like, what does it look like? I'm like, oh, it kind of looks like a cross section of a cabbage being cut with a sharp knife. <laughs> you know what? That was a cool technique she learned. This is way back um, when she first started in New York at school. One of the instructors did this thing where he would play music and you paint to what you feel about the music. Mm-hmm. And Georgia loved that. I had forgotten to mention that earlier and maybe it came out later in that particular painting. Well, let's try that. You know, that was yeah. exciting. Yeah, 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 yeah. And living at the Shelton, you know, they were up on the 28th floor, which was very high. You know, it was one of the highest buildings in New York City at the time. They didn't have any blinds or curtains because who could see in? As an <laughs> artist, she wasn't a cook yet. So they took all their meals at the restaurant. And so they, there wasn't even a kitchen. I mean, it was a hotel, but it worked really well for them. And it must have been so inspirational with all those windows just to see the glittering city, such a different vista than anywhere that she had lived before, you know, Wisconsin, Virginia, Texas. They don't look like this. (laughs) Yes, that is true. (laughs) Well, this short period of harmony and glorious work on both of their parts. He also did a lot of cityscapes at this time. This didn't last forever. Georgia took to taking time off from her marriage, like a vacation from living with him. Um, Instead, she would take off to friends in Maine or Canada. Stiglitz obviously was very uncomfortable with this. He wanted his wife to go to like George, where wives go with their husband in this family. And, And she, you know, we know Georgia by now. She just went. Like, I'm not asking permission. I We'll see you later. 
<laughs> she needed more data. She needed more inspiration. The city was wearing her down and breaking her spirit. And so was Stieglitz, kind of. These short trips really boosted her. Um, This is, you know, she's got barns this time, seascapes, shells, more flowers. Stieglitz, was this a punishment for her independence, began an affair with a young admirer of money named Dorothy Norman. <laughs> Who I call the mistress. It lasts for a very long time and I never wrote her name in my notes. I just call her the mistress. <laughs> So who's got that cool naming thing going on? No, I'm just kidding. That's not that cool. She finally broke away from her trips and, you know, would come back after he begged her often enough. But honestly, they tried not to talk about this. It was a big elephant in the room. I mean, an elephant with bobbed hair and lipstick on, but like they didn't ever address Dorothy Norman's existence. He didn't deny because she never accused him of it. It's very, very tenuous and stressful. So when an invitation came from a socialite named Mabel Dodge Luhan to come stay. Oh, come stay in our lovely new house in Taos, darling. You know, well, she went. Some of her friends had been there before and said it was very inspirational and that Mabel had good food and it was fun and she should go. New Mexico. Well, okay. Mabel, behaviorally, sort of reminds me of Karen from Will and Grace. She's had four husbands. Um, you know, she's married for money most of the time, but this latest one um, was a Native American. So yes. radical. Anyway, so, you know. More radical. He was a full-blooded Pueblo Indian, and she didn't like the spelling of his last name, so he changed it. It was spelled L-U-J-A-N. She changed it to L-U-H-A-N, and he went along with it. So that's the kind of person she was. I think she's the boss. Well, Georgia took her up on her offer. Okay, that's fine. Quite a few artists were collected out there at their house that year, including Ansel Adams, who we know, obviously just as inspired by the desert landscape as Georgia was. Um, They'd given her a studio, uh, kind of an outbuilding to herself. So someone knows her or else she'd asked for it. Um, It was called The Pink House. And Georgia was ecstatic. I feel at home at last. Maybe no art will come out of this experience. Georgia's a realist. Mrs. Maple was too much of a socializer to let Georgia concentrate the way she needed to. But you know, they're all sitting on the roof, having drinks, watching the sunset. She didn't care. Georgia didn't care. I feel alive again at last. It had to look so foreign because we go, oh, Taos, we know what it looks like because we've seen pictures. But she had Texas kind of to reference it, but that still doesn't show you what New Mexico looks like. And it must have just been like going to another planet from New York, you know, green, green, and now suddenly browns and golds and reds. Well, this is how Georgia herself described it in a letter. Taos is a high, wide, sage-covered plain in the evening with the sun at your back. It looks like an ocean. The color up there is different. The blue-green of the mountains, the wildflowers in bloom. There's a different kind of color here from anything I've seen. The world is so wide up here. It's so big. It's just, it seems to just like breathe air into her like a saving grace. Well, her friends wrote back to New York that Georgia was serene here and uncracked. That was interesting phraseology to me. She bought a car, learned to drive, (laughs) traveled in a way I really like to do. She grabbed a friend, a lady friend, no plans. Let's just go here, meet people, eat whatever, accept invitations, see new things. Mrs. Mabel offered graciously, I'll have your husband out here too. Wouldn't you like him to enjoy? And she's like, no. Pretty telling. Georgia lost her temper and said, 
And I quote, he wouldn't let me drive five miles to the market. I won't have him here. <laughs> mm. I don't, I don't, I don't blame her because she's just hanging out with her friend whose name coincidentally was Rebecca, but they called her Beck. <laughs> yes. You're just like all over the place here. <laughs> you know what? As a side note, I think Beck was one of the ladies that her husband had had an affair with earlier. They yes. must have gotten over it. Yes, I, I agree. And she was married to a mutual friend, Paul Strand, who is a photographer. So, Man, this is an incestuous world of art. <laughs> well, so Georgia and Beck, you know, danced and sunbathed naked. They uh, wrote back that they took off all their clothes in the middle of the day one time and just walked around. And it was so like, woo, so like shocking and amazing. And they wandered and flirted and teased each other and just Georgia ate big dinners and just filled up her spirit. It was very good. Stieglitz back home was increasingly upset by her absence, though not upset enough, I will tell you, to give up his girlfriend, Dorothy. I kind of had it with him. Yeah, that's about when I did too. Though I guess I can see she is not meeting his needs either. You know, if you're a Victorian man, you probably expect deference from your wife and admiration or and Georgia's grown out of all that. So yes, he's not meeting her needs, but neither is is he getting what he needs in the relationship either? You know? Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree. But she's always been independent. You know, it, again, he knew what he was getting into. Did he think he was going to change her to be this, on one hand, this incredibly creative, free-thinking artist, and then on the other hand, this proper wife? Uh. I think he wanted his cake and eat it too. That's what oh, I yeah. think. Okay. Which I still think should be... He wanted to eat his cake and still have it, which makes always made more sense to me. It does. So You're I don't right. know why we say that backwards, but there were still, anyway, the deepest of love between them. That's what we have to remember. We cannot understand this because we're not in the marriage. Neither did I understand Frida and Diego's relationship. Seems to me people put up with a lot that they didn't need to. And things did have to change. Things had to fit in differently, I think. And from this time on, for about the next 15 years, Georgia left Stieglitz every spring to go to various places in New Mexico, often for months at a time, one time for half a year. Between the two of them, the husband and wife had come up with, as one of their friends called it, a marriage that was a system of deals and trade-offs. Well, this is probably a good time to take a break. When we come back, we'll find out what happens with the rest of her life. Georgia is in New Mexico, quite happily. And this is where her other most famous pictures come from. The landscapes of the desert, the adobe buildings, and those cow skulls. So if you know two things about Georgia O'Keeffe, you know about the flower pictures and you know about the cow skull pictures. Some of them got kind of surreal at some points or even look like Frida Kahlo's work to me. I should rephrase that. Frida Kahlo's work looks like some of these to me. <laughs> I had never thought about that, but yeah. Okay. Actually, there's one called Sun and Life by Frida Kahlo that 
had I not known, I would have guessed might have been Georgia O'Keeffe's work, by the way. It doesn't happen a lot. There's also a Frida where she's got antlers that looks a little bit like one of Georgia's. I mean, they're not alike in many ways, but sometimes they come together. I had to go look it up. Yep, I agree. Yep. Later on, by the way, Frida Kahlo bragged to her friends that she flirted with Georgia O'Keeffe in New York when she was there with Diego. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. That's Frida Kahlo's uh, claim to fame right then. I am Diego Rivera's wife and I have flirted with Georgia O'Keeffe, but her fame comes later. (laughs) Um, So the new works were reviewed positively. Some critics got her. Just like with the flowers, what she wanted to paint was the shapes, the forms. And one of the critics said, looking at these original works purely from the painting angle, they are Miss O'Keefe's best. And I imagine she saw these ghostly relics merely as elegant shapes, charged with solemn mystery, to be taken at face value and reverenced for their intrinsic form. Yes, Exactly, says Georgia, but just like they always do with poetry, literature, and all other artistic endeavors, other critics are like, she is now obsessed with the inevitability of death Um, (laughs) because of the Native American spirits going through her house on New Mexico and the spirits of, and she's just like, no, oh, no, not again. These articles are just full of misinterpretation salad. <laughs> well, anyway, she converted her old Model A into a mobile studio, which I really like. She, um, you know, surely she didn't do this on her own. Maybe she had it done. The back seat got flipped around to mm-hmm. hold a uh, painting, and she could sit under the cover because she's painting in the desert. There's only so much direct sunlight a body can take. Mm-hmm. Well, it was probably the light was probably better with some shade too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from an art point of view, yeah, that car was pretty cool. She <laughs> named it Hello. I love that. <laughs> and when she first got it, that was that girls' trip with Beck. One day they decided to wash the car and they couldn't find any rags, so they used sanitary pads. <laughs> Those nerds, man. She sounds like a fun friend. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I agree. Here's another thing. She has a sense of humor. You see her all grim, don't you? In all these pictures, she's serious, but she's sitting for a portrait. But if you can catch her, like my favorite picture of her, she's like looking at the viewer through a piece of Swiss cheese. She has a sense of humor. Oh, Um, yeah. Like she loved nothing more than a laugh. So, so please know that's a part of her too. She's friendly. She has friends. People like her and she likes to laugh. So we're just like dispelling myths. (laughs) I think so. I think so. Because Patsy O'Keefe is still inside of her for the rest of her life. <laughs> well, whenever she went back to New York, something in her spirit spoke to Stieglitz again, and he was inspired to start another photo series with Georgia O'Keeffe. See, that's the good thing about being in with a sort of photographers and producing a lot of art. We sure have a lot of visual record of her existence, don't we? Oh, we do. Not a lot of it is in the public domain. (laughs) Well, that's what Pinterest is for. That's right. It's an extremely easy board to put together. I'll just tell you that right now. (laughs) Um, So there was a new light in her eyes he wanted to capture, but mm, guess who else stayed in the picture? That's Dorothy Norman. Not in the pictures of Georgia. That might be a little much, even for the 1930s. (laughs) (laughs) The global picture of life. Though Stieglitz, I have to tell you, he was now exactly exhibiting portraits of Dorothy Norman in his own shows. Mm. Mm-hmm. Remember, Dorothy Norman is married. Well, it was just, I just can't even imagine what her husband was like. 
because she is having the kind of relationship with Stieglitz that Georgia did early on. I mean, she's going up to Lake George. I don't understand this families, but that's okay. I don't have to. I didn't have them. <laughs> the only description I read of him was that he was big and irritable. So I really don't know what that means. I'd be irritable too. Well, yeah. I mean, if you were looking at the relationship, Georgia was irritable too. When but she didn't talk about it. No. (laughs) Well, Stieglitz was actually irritated with his wife for refusing to be friends with Dorothy. Mm, Don't you want to just shake him? You know. Mm -hmm. mm. Yes. Well, when Georgia signed a contract to do a mural for the new Ladies' Lounge at Radio City Music Hall, it was quite an honor, actually. He had the nerve to be infuriated that she had bypassed him, both as a husband and as her agent. Like, how dare you embarrass me? He said. And Ah, everybody knows about Dorothy is the thing. Mr. Moral High Ground. If we want to talk about embarrassment. Okay, I am going to just, I'm not one to defend the man, but look, he's spent how many years establishing the cost of her painting? That's what he's been doing. He is selling her paintings. She sold six calla lilies for like $25,000, you know, 1930s money. So he's been establishing the cost of her painting. She took $1,500 to paint this mural. Like she accepted it. I think she would have done it for free. I did too. A very, very illustrious project that would remain in a public building for everyone to see. It was just an honor. And I think she really wanted to do it. Yes. Well, murals were big at the time. I mean, Diego Rivera, just go back to the Frida Kahlo episode. I actually think he was fired from this same project. (laughs) I actually, I think so. I do. I can't really remember. Yeah, I can't either. He painted something, or was it at Rockefeller Center? Okay, no, 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 no. I got it. It was a picture of Radio City Music Hall at Rockefeller Center that the people in charge didn't like because he had included an image of Lenin, and he was ordered off the premises. He wasn't on the same project, but you know how things get filed. Radio City and (laughs) Rockefeller Center are both involved, so our memories are correct. Yes, I stand by that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so so big names in the industry are being involved in this project, and she was flattered to be considered big name in the industry. So anyway, he kept at her, hounding her. I, You know, justified or not, I don't know, but there's a point where he just goes too far, and he hounded her until she eventually just had to abandon the project. She kind of put a good face on it. It was ostensibly due to a construction error. The canvas was coming off the plaster wall, and she couldn't paint it. But actually, without the support of Stieglitz, her confidence came crashing down. After all that time finding herself, he found a way to shame her, I guess, or something. Their friends were quite surprised by his reaction. He didn't care who knew. He was mad at her. She was a disobedient wife. You know, how dare she? He made her, you know, you were working as a waitress in a cocktail bar when I found you. (laughs) That kind of thing. It was not good. And she fell apart. She broke down. She stopped painting and was admitted to the hospital. Mm-hmm. What you'll read is that um, when the canvases started coming down from the wall, that she just burst into tears and ran out and was immediately hospitalized. But that's not what happened. There, that was the spin that Stieglitz put on it to get her out of the contract. Um, it, she was hospitalized because of the pressure of it. And um, she kind of had a, a break, you know, like a breakdown. But it wasn't immediate like the stories will make it sound. And even when she was released from the hospital, months later, by the way, she was not herself in any way. She 
would say to people kind of in a bewildered fashion, I seem, I seem to have a weakness in my mind. I, there's a part of me, I don't know what to call it. It's so weak that it keeps the rest of me from functioning at all. Mm -hmm. That sounds like um, clinical depression to me. (laughs) That's what I think too. And Stieglitz told people, well, I feel like a murderer now. Well, she may never paint again, he said. Well, yeah, guess what? Yeah. It was, in fact, two years before she started to paint again. So look in the mirror. That's right. That's right. And she spent a lot of time away from him trying to convalesce from this breakdown. Um, That's the only thing that got her through it was not seeing him. He was limited to the amount of time he was allowed in when she was in the hospital. And then afterwards, she went off on a cruise to Bermuda to help herself recuperate away from him. The only thing that makes me feel the tiniest bit better about this, mm-hmm. uh, only because it's a middle finger to Stieglitz, was that the same year she got hired for the Radio City Project, right before it all went down, she had painted this big flower called Jimson Weed, White Flower Number One. So that happened right before the Radio City debacle and before he broke her. Okay, in 2014, it set the auction record for a woman painter's work when it sold for 40 Four million dollars. So but, perhaps Stieglitz doesn't know everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was kind of a stick it to him at that time, too, because she got I mean, she got ten thousand dollars of, you know, 1930 whatever money, which is like one hundred and eighty five thousand now. You know, who actually commissioned that painting was Elizabeth Arden herself for her new Salon Moderne on Fifth Avenue. So it went in the new gymnasium they had built. So anyway, women supporting women artists. I thought that was pretty cool. I learned that it was Jimson weed, which does look like a moonflower, but they're not related. A moonflower will only get you a little stoned if you consume it. Jimson weed will kill you. So I think it's kind of appropriate that a big picture of a poison flower <laughs> is what vindicated her talent uh, from this year of trouble. So, you know, sometimes karma does give you a little present wrapped in a little bow, but you can't open it until many years later. Um, it is, by the way, if you are anywhere near Arkansas, it is at Crystal Bridges Museum, that famous painting, if you're close and you're interested and you wish to take a History Chicks field trip. So anyway, anyway, Georgia forgave him. She loved him. But I don't want to talk about him anymore. He's He seems toxic, like a Jimson weed, and unhelpful. But I'm going to respect her views because, like I said earlier, I'm not in the marriage. People make accommodations all the time that seem hurtful from the outside. But it could have just been self-preservation or... Yeah, yeah. or their relationship evolved and, and they were both fine with it. I mean, I don't know. We weren't there. Well, she did fall in love again, but it was with a place called Ghost Ranch, Rancho de los Brujos, which means sort of, again, I love this, malevolent spirits. It doesn't mean (laughs) Casper the Friendly Ghost. It means like um, the spirits of murderers and bad guys, like with an overtone of magic powers, sorcerers or warlocks or something. (laughs) Like spirits that can mess you up, that roam around, (laughs) is what a brujo is. Well, anyway, um, here, she really clicked and felt like she had come home for the first time. Just glorious scenarios, the pink cliffs on one side, and this place called Cerro Pedernal on the other, which actually means Flint Hill. She was obsessed with the Pedernal. It, It really stood for the feelings that she felt when she was in New Mexico. You know how like a smell reminds you of a whole 
period of your life, Mm -hmm. seeing that reminded her of the contentment she felt during this period of her life. It always had a special place in her heart. It's like almost like that thing from um, Close Encounters. Oh, that's what it looks like. Nicer. Oh, yeah, I agree. And, you know, when I read her reaction to this, my first inclination was to say, oh, this was her happy place. No, that's too common. That's too basic for her. It was more spiritual than your any happy place that we can think of. You know, it was her inspiration. It was her, her oxygen. You know, she just felt really renewed and alive there. And as usual with art, I'd sure like to show it to you. And instead, you'll have to, again, visit the Pinterest board to see what's going on. There's bones and rocks and sky and pictures of her house, which she arranged like a gallery almost. There's hardly any furniture in it except kitchen furniture. She was really into kitchen furniture because she also took up the homely and creative arts of baking and preserving again and never gave them up for the rest of her life. So there are many creative forces living here, but she liked to have minimal amount of things and everything she had, she had for a reason. And I don't like that kind of style, but having looked at all these pictures for as long as we have been, I'm like, I can see living like that. You know, it just looks so clean and uncluttered and (laughs) I liked it. (laughs) Some of you may have seen some pictures I let slip of the decor in here and Georgia would have put her hand on her forehead and walked right back out with one backward step because this is a treasure trove of artifacts (laughs) up in here. That's all I'm saying about that. And it's a lot more arty than the space I'm in right now, which is my son's room packed up to go to college this weekend. (laughs) Mess. All right. Well, the Metropolitan Museum of Art wanted to stage a retrospective of George's work when she was 59. And Stieglitz objected again. Here's his viewpoint. Anyone who wants to see my wife's work better just come to my gallery. Yeah. Dude, it's an honor. No woman had ever been offered a retrospective at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, But New Mexico had filled Georgia with steel, frankly, and he didn't win this time. The show must and did go on, and it was a great honor and a great success. Yay. I just think it's so cool that she becomes this person because she's in New Mexico. You know, she likes who she is better. You know, when somebody breaks up with you that you don't want to and you're like, I just like who I am with you. Well, she likes who she is with New Mexico in her blood. And yeah, you go. You show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. (laughs) Well, Stieglitz fell ill while Georgia was in New Mexico, grievously ill, though she didn't come back when first summoned admittedly, which shocked people once she realized how serious it was, because I'm here to tell you, he has a boy who cried wolf did a lot. And after a certain amount of that, you're like, you tried this malarkey last time. So yes, at first she thought it was another one of those things. But once she realized it was real, she did come immediately. Yeah, he had suffered a stroke and uh, she rushed back to be at his side. Of course, the mistress was already there. (laughs) (laughs) But they took turns sitting by his bedside. I, I know we're trying to kill him off here, but earlier in their the relationship with the mistress, she was pregnant and there's talk that it might have been his child. And he was so involved with this pregnancy. He was excited and worried about her and all the things that Georgia wanted for her own self. 
you know, the child with him. She was watching him do this with his married mistress. So, yes. So he he died. And Georgia buried his ashes at his favorite summer destination, his family's place in Lake George, though she never would tell anyone where. Yeah. (laughs) You'll find some sources that say that she buried them near this tree by his parents' house right on the shore. But you don't know. That's that's kind of cool, I think. And then later, some relatives of his that were trying to get a new well dug or like just kind of tell us if where we plan to dig this well, see attached plan is going to run through him. (laughs) And she's like, maybe, maybe not. And they're like, well, I guess he's going to be just part of the house then because she won't (laughs) tell us where he is. So after three years of hard work straightening out his affairs, there were a lot of bequests of art to museums. He had actually taken payment in art for a lot of things, like who took this, what year is it from, where are it to go, where do his papers go? I mean, there was a lot to do. Yeah, he was. He had like 800 pieces of art that weren't his or Georgia's that had yeah. to go somewhere. And she found places for everything. You know, she was very meticulous and very thorough. And she went through everything and got it to where he would have wanted it, which was really sweet. And she did get to tell off the mistress at one point because the mistress is like, I'm mourning too. And she did get to tell her that she found their relationship, quote, absolutely disgusting. That was (laughs) such a great moment. (laughs) She also kicked her out of the gallery. I know she tried to run, Georgia tried to run the gallery from afar for a while with uh, proxies and everything. And it just got to be kind of like, blah, too much. But I know that Dorothy... You know, if we ever did a podcast on Dorothy, which we won't, but we'd be on her side. Georgia came and took all her stuff. She found the funds for it and she worked at it every day. And she was, you know, trying to establish herself as an artist. And Stieglitz was kind of helping her. So I think gallery was like her home. And Georgia's like, out, you're done. Bye. (laughs) So since we're on Georgia's side, we can just salute to Dorothy. We don't have to feel bad about her. But if you think about it, that's a pretty crappy thing to do. But I see why. Yes. Uh, Well, Georgia was finally able to wash New York out of her hair completely and move to New Mexico for good, full time. Uh, New York right out of my hair. Sorry. (laughs) Old South Pacific. Uh, That geographically and emotionally complicated period of her marriage to Stieglitz was over. Well, the art world is a fickle place. And after a while, it just didn't seem to share her passion for New Mexico anymore. We've seen that. It's not new. The pace of novelty everywhere in the world. If you think about how fast, like once the 20s hit, woo, it was like a hill going downhill, wasn't it? With the pace Mm -hmm. of the way things change. Now we're a little more used to it. But like, think about people trying to accommodate themselves to the pace of just change, change, change. Well, she was completely comfortable with that. I don't have to be in lockstep with everything. I don't care too much about the art world. It's politics stink anyway. And I don't see that it matters too much what they think of me, which is good for her. And totally fitting with her personality, how she's always been, you know, she's going to do things her way. If anybody's on board, that's fantastic. If they're not, that's okay too. And I am loving the way that she's living right now. She has her nice house that was actually plastered by women, which Mm -hmm. she actually found quite lovely. Um, She worked on this extremely complicated garden, organic, of course. But she even said, I have begun work on a project that is going to take me 25 years because I don't know anything about this. And it takes a long time to see if you're getting the right picture. And so she was intrigued 
If only she'd had another life, maybe she would have taken up gardening because the way she started to approach that makes me think of the way she started to approach painting. Like she would sit there and just look at a plant, not as an artist, but, you know, as a, I don't know, like a cultivator of nature. I just loved that. Also, she became a cultivator of hearts and minds. You know, anyone can just plunk down money and move into a house, I suppose. Although think about it, it's kind of like an expat moving to a village in a foreign country. Although New Mexico was within the United States, they were very suspicious of her at first, but she took care to hire more people than she actually needed to do anything. That's a way to get in their good graces. No kidding, no kidding. And then she took the local kids in her car to the big town to the movies one time a month. That's pretty cool. She loaned her car to the local baseball team so they could go to their baseball games. She built a gym so the kids could have somewhere indoors to play. She paid for a clean water system for the whole town even though her own house had perfectly good water. Mm -hmm. She did not have to do it to get clean water for herself. Yeah. I kept thinking throughout this whole thing that I would really love to hang out with her. I liked her so much and she would like have like no time for me. (laughs) That's what I kept thinking. She was very capricious though with who Mm -hmm. she liked to hang out with and who she didn't. I mean, it was almost like anyone that came to the door had a chemistry test. Like she became fast friends with one guy because he made a really good salad. (laughs) Yeah. So, you You never know. That's the thing. It's just a complete crapshoot. These art students came from far away. I want to say they made the trip from California in their ratty Alec old car that broke down all the time. They just wanted to make a pilgrimage to see George O'Keefe. And they just rolled up, hadn't written a letter or anything. They're like, we came all this way to see George O'Keefe. And she just stared at them. Chemistry (laughs) test has failed and said, here's the front. And she turned around and she called over her shoulder and there's the back. And she went in her house and slammed the door. So yes, ma'am, Georgia O'Keeffe is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to (laughs) get. I just loved her. She saw needs. She filled them. I mean, she was a very wealthy woman. You know, she had her own money, of course, but then she had getting rid of uh, Stieglitz stuff. There was a lot of money involved here. So she's comfortable. She lives fairly frugally, even though she has two houses in the same area. She spends (laughs) half the year at one, half the year at the other. I guess she liked that migratory um, lifestyle. But if she saw a need, she just filled it. I I love it. She paid for several villager children to go to college Mm -hmm. after having built them an elementary school. Yes. So she also kept in touch with friends and family back home. There were lots of visitors. Her sisters came back into her life. Her sisters, several of which had their own painting careers. Although I must say Georgia wrecked her sister Catherine's. I actually didn't write it down because I was like, I don't know if I want to bring that into the conversation because it really kind of destroys my vision. I guess I just got to say it. It's not good. So Catherine was getting a modicum of success as a painter. And for some reason, it struck Georgia the wrong way. And she came out of a hole fighting and destroyed her sister's confidence to the point where she never painted again. I mean, it took four years to make up from this. And they did make up and the sister forgave her. But it was like an uncharacteristic jealous streak out of where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I wasn't even going to say anything about that given that we're over it now. But there (laughs) is that in her too, to be vindictive. Yeah, yeah. Um, But she helped a lot of her relatives financially, too, although she did insist on collateral most of the time. (laughs) She went back to New York and had her first exhibition after Stieglitz died. And when she came back, she took the train, stopped in Kansas City to see the Asian collection at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. I walked where George O'Keefe did. That's so cool. 
as a woman of means now, she began to travel. That's the weird thing. This woman who is so world known hasn't traveled very much outside of the United States. She told her friends that she finally felt able to travel because Stieglitz would worry her to death the whole time he was not a good traveler. And she felt free to go places now where she didn't before. So she made the most of it. She um, has some good pictures of Machu Picchu, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. In Peru. Um, She went everywhere. Europe, Japan, Hawaii, South America, off to Mexico to visit her friends Diego and Frida. Frida was actually bedbound this year when Georgia O'Keeffe came down to Mexico to call upon her and commiserate. And I would like to point out, although we forgot to mention it before, that the year Georgia had her breakdown, back in 1932, Frida Kahlo had written her a letter asking how she was and saying that she'd never forgotten her from their meeting in New York and expressing concern that she was so sick, upset. So these two artists had a sort of mutual admiration society and a mutual support system. And I was very gratified and surprised to read about that. Meanwhile, Georgia O'Keeffe continues to lead the active lifestyle that I, much younger than Georgia O'Keeffe at this period of time, cannot even aspire to. I mean, girlfriend went whitewater rafting in her 70s in Colorado. (laughs) I love that. And they're like, you don't have to row. And she's like, if I can't row, I shouldn't be in this boat. She was a big proponent of physical exercise. You know, she was always walking. And there's a video of her just like racing up this old ladder in 90. I have to tell you something about that Colorado trip that I think is so funny. You know how she feels about rocks and skulls and shells and blah, blah, blah. Uh She's in Colorado and she's collecting cool rocks. And then it got everywhere. It's an all skate. We're all going to collect cool rocks. And so everybody had a little rock collection to take home with them. And the guide is like, these rocks... The boats can't go down the river like this. These rocks have to go. And Georgia looked around with a big smile and she says, mine aren't leaving. And everyone else was forced to throw their rocks overboard. (laughs) But the group that she went with, they were like her family. It was like this big group of her family that took this 11-day trip down the Colorado River, camping on the side and rafting. It's like a family vacation. Well, she is taking epic voyages of the sort I wish I would take. Maybe someday. I have not built up my capital to quite the extent Georgia had, of course. Um, hmm, that might be a problem. Well, anyway, all this traveling by airplane to the exotic places um, led to a whole new series of clouds seen from above. Some of these are just giant. Like, I'm talking flowers you thought were giant. No. One of these is eight feet by 24 feet. And similar to the way that Bartholdi had (laughs) built that one statue within an inch of the ceiling of his workshop, the only reason this thing isn't longer is that George's workshop was 24 feet long. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, it would have been a lot longer. That's right. That's right. Um, It is currently at the Art Institute in Chicago, if you would like to see that. Well, I like how she lived. I do. I like how she lived. She made friends out of assistants and the wife of the gas station owner down the road and anyone who could cook. She noticed beauty in everything. That's something I think, you know, I can cultivate that without capital, can't I? Because she didn't have money worries and we can't just duplicate that automatically, but we can duplicate like maybe I'll go out and look at a flower in a different way or, hey, there's a cool rock and I'm not in a boat. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god i have another rock story okay. i can't even believe this see all these stories about georgia o'keefe that make me laugh okay so her friend not this trip but a different trip picked up this rock and georgia really admired it and you could tell she really wanted it and so her friends decided to play a joke on her because they weren't that attached to the rock and she really was but they were like oh no i want to keep this for my shelf blah, blah blah they had a party and purposely purposely left it on the coffee table in plain sight and everybody at the party but georgia knew this was a trap or a setup and everyone was watching and sure enough georgia went over and put it in her pocket <laughs> and they didn't say anything about it they let it I go know. but it was like everybody got to take a shot <laughs> when georgia stole the rock that's right well that's anyway funny. so i like her i like her group of friends um full Wait. contradictions uh, yes that's the part she said in her life i've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life and i never let it keep me from doing a single thing i wanted to do and at this point in her life, that's exactly what she's doing. She is killing rattlesnakes. <laughs> <laughs> she had a collection of dead rattlesnakes. Wow. I hope she ate them. I think she probably painted them. Because she ate meat, right? She wasn't a vegetarian. Oh, no. She was a big fan of the beefsteak. Yeah. Like, but she took a special pride about being a good forager and, um, you know, getting herbs from the land and growing beans. And it's got to be hard to grow things out of the mm -hmm. desert and she was really really managing to get quite proficient at growing food there so anyway there's that too i will tell you she has been set up as a feminist icon and there are times we come across this in our reading and i guess i'm interested to know what you think there are people who are feminist icons but really haven't necessarily brought people with them. They've just lived their life the way that they wanted to live. The end. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. she scolded Eleanor Roosevelt in a letter for opposing the Equal Rights Amendment, though. So that's using her power for good. To Eleanor Roosevelt, she said, it's important to the idea of true democracy that all men and women stand equal under the sky. And yet she wouldn't see Gloria Steinem, who came to the door with flowers in her hands. <laughs> so uh, she's also angry about being called a woman artist. I'm just an artist. You can write about women. You can write about artists. I don't see what any of that has to do with each other. You know, she lived before women could vote and Anita Pulitzer was very active in the suffrage movement and they were very close. So she was kind of like a peripheral part of that. You know, she wasn't marching or anything, but I do consider her a feminist icon because of the way she lived her life. It was iconic. You know, she lived it not to follow any rules of society. If she wanted to do it, she did it, regardless yeah. of her gender. And so in that regard, yes, I do think she's a feminist icon. I have no problem calling her that. I don't know. That's in the air. Let's let that float. So Georgia began to lose her central vision when she was in her 80s. It's called macular degeneration. So you can see around the sides, but if you look directly at something, what you've got is a gray circle, sort of. I can't imagine a more ironic and horrible thing to happen to her, although it did run in her family. Mary Cassatt also had problems with her vision later in life. What is that about? Overusing their eyes. But if anybody lived healthy... It was Georgia O'Keeffe. You know, she intentionally ate healthy. She intentionally right. kept, you know, an organic garden. And one of her assistants <laughs> once is like, I need to go um, run an errand in town. And when she came back, Georgia O'Keeffe gave her the hairy eyeball and is like, I know where you went. 
And the assistant's like, I went to town to use the payphone. She's like, you went to town to buy poison because I see the candy wrapper in the front seat. <laughs> like her diet was so healthy that her friend is like, Hershey bar, oh, my kingdom. <laughs> I love it. I think she was very hard to work for in one sense, but in another sense, like she had a big sense of humor. Uh, you know, if you had yeah. the chemistry, she'd let you. Well, speaking of that, <laughs> once upon a time, a young man came to the back door and asked, uh, and this happened more often than you would think, came to the door to ask if she had any odd jobs for him. It turns out she did. Just at that moment, he came with good timing. She had a plumbing problem. Could he fix the plumbing problem? All right, let's do that. It was a man named Juan Hamilton. Do I have that name right? Yeah. In some, in some places, you'll see it called Juan and others, John. I mean, he was American, but he was raised by a missionary. His father was a missionary in South America. So Juan is how he was called. Written out name is John. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to call him Juan because everyone called him Juan. Yeah. That's... And he kind of looks like a Juan, I think. Well, he was a handsome guy, handsome young guy, um, in his late 20s, early 30s. He was 56 years younger than Georgia. He'd come to the door, did his work. She had some other stuff for him to do. Can you crate up a painting I need to send somewhere? And like, who can crate up a painting? I don't know. But he did it uh, well enough. He had not come as a cold caller as he marketed himself. He was actually an aspiring artist. I don't know if you'd call him a stalker. He was a fan. He knew that you can't just come to the door necessarily. You have to come with a purpose and you kind of have to sneak. And he kind of got in through the plumbing and stayed for a long time. <laughs> for a very long time. Well, she kept finding things that he could do. You know, she's talking to him at the beginning and she says, you speak very well. Did you finish high school? And he's like, well, I finished college and a couple years of grad school. Can you type? Yeah. So she had him typing up stuff. So he wasn't just a handyman, but he was kind of a personal secretary, a personal assistant. Her secretary had quit right before he showed up at that door. So he did everything. And I think he's one of those people that people either thought he was a gold digger or they thought that he was the best thing for her because they had a really good friendship. She took him as an artist under her wing, something she had never done and helped mentor him. And he, in return, as her eyesight was going, taught her to make pots because she could do that without looking. Now, in all of her work, there's two different examples of statuary. Now, let's call them two. I think the second one has been reproduced in different sizes. So I don't know if that counts as one. So one was from way, way, way back in 1916 that looks sort of like a weeping figure that actually appears in several of her paintings. And then one that looks like a big spiral that was actually modeled in 1946, but keeps getting reproduced. I know there were some new ones even in the 70s, but it's surprising to me that she never really worked in that medium. And not even now. Now she was working on pots with the visiting potter, but never really went back into sculpture, which you would think would be something you could fall back on tactile, you know, uh, after your vision goes. But she really didn't have any interest in moving towards specializing in that. And so that's not her art. I can respect it, but I wish she had gone there. So she and Juan the potter lived together and he helped her out domestically and professionally. And that's that. It was a very controversial relationship. I mean, man, you should see these fiery chapters in all the books. 
I mean, but then flip side, she helped him get a show of his work. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I wasn't there. It just seemed like a very sweet, mutual respect. And they were both able to help each other. They both came at the right time in their life. He is recently divorced. You know, they just worked together. She never had a son. She kind of looked at him like a son. There is some talk out there that they had talked about marriage, but I think it was really just for legal reasons, not any... um, you know, sexual reasons. Well, he is a very polarizing figure. Definitely. You either look at him like a nefarious opportunist mm-hmm. or you look at him as someone who gradually got closer and closer to her until honestly, he was the most important person in her life. Mm-hmm. And he genuinely was. Their relationship got closer and closer and closer and closer until he was literally handling art deals for her. Correspondence had to go through him. People started to learn there's no point writing to Georgia because it all goes through his hands anyway. Um, Friends would call and he wouldn't put her on the phone, that kind of thing. That's where it gets a little alarming for me. Now, was it at her request as she started to withdraw from the world? We'll never know. There was a period of time when he had gone off to see some family and another young man had appeared and started doing some odd jobs for her, painting the trim. He wasn't a painter (laughs) as far as their relationship was. He was painting the trim. But then she had an idea. Can I try this situation? I can't see very well. I can see around the corners of my vision. If I write some lines, could you be the draftsman and apply the colors where I tell you to, to this new assistant? Um, It was a relatively successful picture. Um, You know, as that kind of weird proxy situation goes, it's called From a Day with Juan. So there's an homage to Juan Hamilton in it, but when he came home, he was so livid at what he saw was the usurpation of his privileges and his power that when he found out that this man had eaten at her table as an equal, he was just infuriated and turned very, very ugly. I can't help but think that's the one thing that she didn't want, you know, because she had that whist. Stieglitz. Yes. You also see the echo. He's an interesting fellow. Very, uh, lots of depth, I think. (laughs) Yes. Um, and ultimately as she got older, he had complete power of attorney over her affairs, complete control of her assets. There were some worries about elder abuse and intimidation. Later investigations during the controversy about her will showed that George's last year's could possibly have been full of hostility and manipulation, though she was physically very cared for. Um, Mm -hmm. And no one accuses him of starving her or anything. There were thoughts that he might have tricked her into signing a marriage document or signing all her money away in a codicil to her will. It's he Mm -hmm. said, she said at this point. And Georgia was getting a little unable to do the she said part. Right. Flip side... She bought a very large house and she moved in with Hamilton. He had gotten married and had a couple of kids and moved in with them at the, towards the very end of her life. So he could take care of her. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. This, this is one of those things that you could make a movie about this relationship and have the ending go. People just don't know. You know, one of those really cool movies. Somebody write that. Okay, how about this for a quote? Juan might have felt affection for her in the beginning, but only in the beginning. In the end, it was an estate. Juan, his patience just got frayed. He felt overburdened. He vented his rage on Georgia. He could intimidate her by shouting. There were things she would have liked to do, like to see other people or go around more, but she was afraid of making him angry, said the housekeeper. He was mean to her a lot. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, like I said, I'm torn. I don't know how to look at this guy. I can't decide on this one. Yeah. I don't know. I hate to think of it ending this way after so much independence and being herself, overcoming everything, mm-hmm. being afraid all her life and never letting that stop her from doing anything. And then here she was, maybe bullied and dependent at the end of her life. Or maybe yeah. not. I can hope for maybe not. Well, it wasn't as bad as like Wallace Simpson, you know, who was clearly elder abuse and at the end. So it wasn't that Oh, bad. speaking of that, Wallace Simpson and her husband, who we know from our podcast as David, mm-hmm. O'Keefe's guest in the desert. <laughs> Worlds are colliding. But that, yeah. was, that was many years before. We should have mentioned that. But yeah. uh, Georgia died on March 6th, 1986 in the hospital in Santa Fe, age 98. Georgia O'Keeffe died alone. According to her wishes, her ashes were scattered over the landscape she loved outside of the ghost ranch, and so she has become a part of the world that she painted. And we have reached the end of the life of Georgia O'Keeffe. After her death, there was great public controversy about the contents of her will, Um, ultimately, the family and Hamilton and the legal system of America reached an agreement that was good for everybody and seemed fair. He did receive a substantial legacy, but not everything. And many museums throughout the country received works of art from Georgia O'Keeffe's collections. Georgia O'Keeffe had a long, long, very full life. Man, it was complicated, wasn't it? And we skipped over so much. You know, a lot of times it's like, well, we got all the high points. And we did get a lot of the high points. But there's so many other, like, little stories within all that that we just couldn't possibly get to. So if if anybody, I would strongly recommend going and getting a biography of her and and learning more. And now it's time for media. We should start with books. Unlike a lot of our subjects, there are a lot of biographies and information and art books and art theory books. I mean, there's so many books on Georgia O'Keeffe that we have to narrow it down. I dropped mine down to three biographies. What about you? I'm going to drop it down to one because I, you're going to have three. So um, oh. <laughs> the um, one book I guess I'm going to recommend, although if you're easily intimidated... This book might not be for you because it has got to be between, I would give it, I would give it a good three inches. It's three inches thick. (laughs) In fact, I walked out of the library with this and a man passing by goes, dang. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I know. Dang. It is Georgia O'Keeffe, A Life by Roxana Robinson. And uh, it would press some flowers, I'll tell you. (laughs) <laughs> but I really like it. It goes into great amounts of detail. It um, uses source material. It excerpts from letters. There are books of letters, and I would recommend that you read those too. Georgia O'Keeffe was a, she was a writer. She was a correspondent. There are tens of thousands of letters of hers that have survived both ends of the conversation or one or the other. And there are whole books of them that I recommend reading if you're at all interested. But this book does excerpt from Childhood On. From Mm -hmm. her letters. So I liked that one a lot. As to children's books, which I'm just going to give you this one, Georgia O'Keeffe by Philip Brooks is a nice, 
let's call it fourth, fifth grade level book. The subtitle is An Adventurous Spirit. So it is, um, it leaves out some of the inconvenient truths <laughs> of <laughs> some of her relationships, which is really good if you don't feel like explaining them. The last thing I'm going to say, which is a book that doesn't exist because Georgia O'Keeffe scrunched it. Her old friend, the one that created her whole career in the first place, Anita Politzer, wanted to write a biography of Georgia and in fact did produce a manuscript, sent it to Georgia, who didn't like it and requested a whole bunch of changes. She changed it and Georgia O'Keeffe didn't like the way she was portrayed. She's like, I am not a glorious sprite walking through the world, you know, sprinkling inspiration out of my hands. I'm a real person and I think you're not making me seem like a real person. And I really feel like perhaps to close this chapter of our lives... Since I view you as a friend, I'll pay you for your time for having written this, but I really ask that you don't publish it. So I think it, bro it broke Anita Politzer's heart, I think. She wanted to do a good job. Nobody sets out to write a sucky book that would offend your friend, but it turns out that's what she ended up doing. Well, I think what it was is that she made it, she's wanted the world to see Georgia through the best lens possible. Mm-hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we're, and there's warts, so she just left the warts out. The other book that I really liked was Full Bloom, The Art and Life of Georgia O'Keeffe by Hunter Drohowska Phillips. <laughs> I know. Okay. This is, yeah, this is the book that my my son picked up and started flipping through the pictures on. But yeah, I thought it was a very good uh, multi view look at her life. You know, there's a lot of warts on her in this one. And there was a book I don't recommend that you read it first. But if you want a fun, a, just a fun read, um, How Georgia Became O'Keefe Lessons on the Art of Living by Karen Carbo. She writes like we talk. Exactly. That's exactly what yeah. I wanted to say. Yeah, I have that. If you like us, you will like the way she did one on Coco Chanel, but I don't think we recommended it because I, I don't I didn't read it at the time. Um, but after I read this one, I read that one, too, because I thought I love the way she wrote, probably because it sounds like us. I would recommend reading that, too. And there was one little kid's book that I thought was charming. Uh, My Name is Georgia, a portrait by Jeanette Winter. And I just love the illustrations on it. It's, you know, it's hard to tell her life in a little kid's book because, A, it's really long. <laughs> and B, there's a lot of, you know, complicated issues involved. So um, I thought it was just really good, a good, good introduction for little kids to her. Very good. Now, as to movies, the main movie that we know or that's out there is Georgia O'Keefe starring Joan Allen as Georgia O'Keefe uh, and Jeremy Irons as Stieglitz. I found this movie ponderous. I did. <laughs> I didn't love it. I do, however, love the portrayals of both Stieglitz and Georgia O'Keefe. So do with that what you will. <laughs> uh, yeah, it really, you know, it's called Georgia O'Keefe, but really it's just a story of a period of time in Georgia and Stieglitz's life. It's just a narrow period of time. And so it's not only about her, it's about their relationship. And I agree. I thought the acting was great, but I was drifting off a few times in the middle. I thought the script was a little lacking. I felt the same way about that. Um, gosh, what was it? That Princess Diana movie that had the Australian actress playing Princess Diana, I was like, what, when is this going to begin? When is, and no, it was over. The credits were mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, <laughs> oh, well, okay. 
That's right. That's right. There are a couple documentaries out. There's one of it's really mm-hmm. short on Amazon. It's part of a series called Art of Style, and they have one on Georgia, which is on Amazon Prime. And on YouTube, you you can watch the BBC documentary on her life, so you can see her. There's interviews with her, and you can see her climb up that ladder. <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice deep dive into her life and with British accents, so I loved it. As for websites, of course, there's the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in Abiquiu, one of her houses. There's four locations of it in the Santa Fe area. There's no virtual tour, unfortunately, online. But if you're going to that area, you can um, definitely go to the O'KeefeMuseum.org and, you know, find out what to do because there's so much. Another, oh, here, this is, I was trying to remember what this website was. I'm going to link you to an article at the Jewish Women's Archive, which is also a podcast about Jewish women in history and issues that have, that they have currently. But there's a nice article on Anita Pulitzer in there. And personally, I fell down a rabbit hole when I went to that website the first time. So <laughs> have fun with that. Oh, their bo- and their podcast is called Can We Talk? Ah, I love I it. Know. Yes, it's it's really good. It's really good. I think they have one a month. <laughs> it's a great it's a great resource site. I really enjoyed it. Now there are, of course, lots of museums that have Georgia O'Keeffe holdings, shall we say? Um, among them, the Art Institute of Chicago has quite a lot. Um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and also Crystal Bridges Museum in Arkansas, the one that paid so much for that painting of Jimson Weed, um, really, really, really wants you to go visit their website. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, every time you search, there they are. Sponsored yeah. ad right at the top. So let's give them a little click um, <laughs> just to say, okay, we got you. We got you. Thanks for spending all that money and getting a hold of that thing. That's really cool. <laughs> And it is really cool. So also, um, I found an article in Harper's Bazaar about Juan Hamilton and kind of the mysterious man that we can't really put our finger on. So there's some information about him. How about this? The Ferris Bueller scene? (laughs) Might as well. Uh, With the painting, I've got an analysis of that scene and why art is so important. And it really, really analyzes that scene at the Art Institute in Chicago, including Cameron's reaction to uh, his painting. So there you go about that. There is on Sky TV a series that I'm even going to have to bleep the name of called Psycho <laughs> that ran on British TV for two years in which the main host is a psychoanalyst and she talks to women from history about their deal. And you can find people like Mary Queen of Scots there, but... I can't find a video of the Georgia O'Keeffe episode. All I can find is an IMDb link that there was an actress who played Georgia O'Keeffe in this show. So if anyone can find me a link to that episode, that would be great. It looked cool. Sort of cool. She interviewed Lot's wife. It was very short. (laughs) We fled. I turned around. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. She said, I see in your notes here, you were told never to look back. Do you want to talk about that? So that was kind of funny because then it pans over to the couch and it's just like a piece of salt shaped like a woman (laughs) laying on the couch and they hold for a very long time and then that section's over. I just thought that was kind of funny. Um, A link to the Bowery Boys podcast episode about the famous, infamous Armory art show. And also, as everyone is... Um, she makes an appearance on The Simpsons, so we'll send you a link to Simpsons Wiki about that. And also, in a very inappropriate scene from The Family Guy, we don't expect anything less or more of The Family Guy, uh, Georgia O'Keeffe is asked the true meaning of her flower paintings. And there is a really inappropriate gesture that she makes that I can't talk about. But there it is. We'll send you a link. 
<laughs> to that, she is not and has never been, as far as I can tell, an episode of Drunk History. So that might be our in. <gasps> if anyone oh. wants to suggest to the gentleman in charge, that could be an option. No, oh, that would be a good one. I would love that. And that will do it for our coverage on Georgia O'Keefe. And in closing, Georgia O'Keeffe is known as the mother of modernism. She created an impressive body of work during her lifetime, always finding a novel way to express what she wanted to say through her art. She overcame fear, tough circumstances, and the obstacles of working in a man's world to emerge triumphant. Her confidence and her own abilities allowed her to achieve her dreams, and we are all the richer for it. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. I hear it's gotten a lot easier. Or tell a few friends about us. We really, really appreciate that. And this Pinterest board is very valuable to your understanding of Georgia O'Keeffe. So don't forget to head over to our Pinterest and look at the pictures both of Georgia and from Georgia, including the picture where she's looking through a piece of cheese. And Frida Kahlo's painting that we think looks so much like Georgia's work. Thanks, as always, to James Harper for letting us use his music for the breaks. The piece today is actually humorously called Sammy Hagar and the Belgian Waffle. The end song is Picture by Xavier and Ophelia, used by permission from MusicAlley.com. Picture how your nights would be Softly as the moonlight falls on the trees Picture all the dreams you'll keep Breathing freely Every night's a picture, girl, you believe Picture how your days would be
Sugar.